We are all products of other people's influence, and this is no less true of our art. In 2022, Japanese video game developer From Software released Elden Ring, their most massive game to date. Gigantic worlds like this aren't created in a vacuum, though. The director of this behemoth, Hidetaka Miyazaki, has been very open about the works of art that influenced him, and those influences are evident when you play his games. Aesthetically, Elden Ring draws heavily from the manga series Berserk, and both Miyazaki and creative contributor George R.R. R. Martin have cited the Lord of the Rings as an influence on their work. Structurally, though, one influence cannot be ignored. The secret caves, cryptic clues, vertical labyrinthian dungeons, and the interconnected worlds of Elden Ring and the Soul series all harken back to the original Legend of Zelda games. In essence, Miyazaki and From Software are setting out to achieve the vision of the early Zelda games, using as little as possible to guide the player to explore massive worlds created for them. The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past in particular, is responsible for influencing countless games, both in how it changed the way people look at designing video game worlds and the personal, formative impact it made on the people who played it. A Link to the Past was aptly named. Not only was it foundational in establishing the tropes for future Zelda games, it's the template for countless adventure games in the years since. From that template, Miyazaki and From Software have created their own subgenre of video games that build off the Soul series. The design of games like Hollow Knight, Neo, and even Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order take direct inspiration from the series. Inevitably, a new style will emerge from another iteration on this form. We are the products of other people, and we carry aspects of them wherever we go. People who have long left our lives have an almost unfair amount of control over it. To know someone is to devote time and exchange information. Mental and emotional associations are tethered together in a collage of shared experience. Art is no different. Through art, people you've never met can have a profound impact on you. Their art informs our tastes, serves as a point of comparison, and also serves as a source of inspiration. The act of sharing art with one another is crucial because of that. It can be a way of getting to know a person and their sensibilities. It's a way to share yourself with someone else. It can be the spark to ignite a relationship, or at least a conversation. When someone shares a work of art with you, you not only take the art into your life, but that person. That person is tied to that art, as they were the person who brought it into your life. In a way, they exist forever as the first time you tried something new, or the book on your shelf, or the songs on a playlist they made for you. It can be scary, but I find that to be deeply moving. These moments can be the catalyst for another great work of art. And even if it isn't, there was a moment in your life when you shared a connection with someone and took it with you. That can be enough. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we all have our links to the past. I'm Kiefer, and this is Select and Start. Welcome back to Select and Start, the podcast where we talk about meaningful and memorable video games. I am joined today by a good friend of mine. He is the writer for the newsletter, The Mental Health Break, as well as the host of the podcast of the same name. Please welcome to the show, TH, aka Tom Holzerman. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, how are you doing, Keeper? You know, that's really nice of you to ask. I'm doing fine myself. It is <laughs> fucking hot outside. Nice. It is 96 degrees here in Virginia. And I am not planning on going outside today, so I hope you are ready for a long podcast. I mean, I, I'm the same boat. Um, 
Delaware County, PA. We are at like 90 degrees and 3,000% humidity. Jesus. Um, that's the thing about East Coast summer, uh, summers. Um, you know, people talk about the uh, 110 out in the desert, you know, uh, Las Vegas, Arizona, uh, New Mexico. But the advantage they have is the dry heat. Out here, if you step outside, if it's 80 degrees, but the humidity is like 80%, you need to wear an oxygen mask. Basically, yeah. that It's humid and I live by the dismal swamp. So <laughs> just, just the very notion of going outside, if I step out there, I'm going to immediately vomit and it is... There's no way I'm doing it. So I am staying in the comfort of my AC, who will cameo on this podcast probably very <laughs> frequently if I don't get it out of the background. But no, uh, this is a weather podcast now. I hope you enjoy that weather report from two different cities. Everyone's getting tornadoes on the East Coast now. What the hell's happening? Yeah, I've never had to, in my adult life, be prepared to hide in a tornado, but I've had to do it twice in the past year. And it's Insane. I don't know. I think there's something with the climate that's changing. I wonder what that is. Hmm, I wonder if it's man that's making it. That would be ridiculous. Maybe it's Godzilla. I think it's Godzilla. <laughs> now, Godzilla's the good guy. Haven't you seen the the, the later movies? He, he did a real babyface turn. He's, he's a good guy now. It's, it's Mothra or um, King Ghidorah. That's the one. King Ghidorah. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, I'm blanking out right now. Sorry. It's the great thing about the heat is also it makes you stupid and insane. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to talk about video games here today on the podcast, uh, as is the nature of a show called Select and Start. But before we get into that, I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. So Tom, what do you do and what do you like? Um, What do I do? I exist. Well, I'm an engineer by trade. I went to school at the Drexel University for five years, five long years, and I became a materials engineer. I work in the, in the engineering industry. I don't want to talk too much about my industry because it's boring, but it, it has afforded me a certain life. And uh, with that life, I do things like uh, play play video games. Obviously, I wouldn't be here. As you'll you'll find out later on in the show, when we talk about the game I came to talk about, I, I am a, a partisan for Nintendo. They're one of the two companies that I have brand loyalty to. And not because they're a, a, they're a particularly moral company. Um, everybody knows Nintendo stinks when it comes to uh, uh, curating its library and making all the games available to play that they want to have played. I'm sure there's some horror stories about Crunch too, but uh, we haven't heard those like we heard with Blizzard Activision or some other companies. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but there is stuff brewing for Nintendo of America specifically about that. Have you heard about this? <sighs> Vaguely. Yeah, that's where we we were only working off of vague information at the moment. But there is allegations of workplace mismanagement and abuse happening, uh, specifically on the American side of things. I don't know what stories are in the Japanese side of Nintendo. But since there is a lot of change happening right now in North America in terms of work sensibilities, some stuff's been coming out everywhere in the industry, of course. But now it's Nintendo of America's turn. Yeah, you're not going to escape that in the video game industry because, you know, capitalism. Yeah. You know, and, and gamers are the, one of the most insatiable and yet hardest to please consumer bases, from what I found. I, I hesitate to call myself a gamer because it's mostly casual. I play mostly Nintendo games. And getting back to the, the main thrust, I'm, I'm a loyal to Nintendo because of the output that they have. The, uh, you know, Zelda, Mario, Pokemon, Metroid, Super Smash. Those are the games I will play. I like to play the retro games, too. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just for re- just for 
Posterity, the other company that I have brand loyalty to, I will never buy a bottle of sriracha sauce unless it has that rooster on it. I'm a hot sauce guy and I love sriracha, but that's the only brand of sriracha that I will will have in my house. I'm not going to buy the Trader Joe's one, even though when you go to Wegmans, so you go to your local supermarket, they have the generic brand of, of sriracha and like, it's just not the same. There, it may be the same, but it doesn't for some reason, it's psychologically, it does not taste the same to me. I need to have the rooster on the bottle. So I, I guess if you want things that I like to do, I like to eat and I like to cook and I like to go out to eat. It's uh, life is very much worth living. If the things that if you can do the things that you need to do to survive, if you can make make them fun and enjoy them. Right. Yeah, I feel that. No, I love the effort that goes into cooking. Cooking is one of those activities that can be time consuming and doesn't piss me off the way other chores do. Uh, for example, cleaning up after cooking. I hate that. <laughs> Uh, even though I have a dishwasher in my home and I'm very, very fortunate to have a dishwasher, I despise it because there's just a mess and I hate the mess of the kitchen afterwards. And I feel like a monster because I perpetuated this mess in the pursuit of gluttony. Well, the thing about dishwasher is you have to load it and unload it and unloading it is, is the real, uh, pain in the butt. Sure. Because, you know, loading it, you just got to feng shui everything, make sure it fits like a puzzle unloading it you have to put everything away mm-hmm. and back before um the crap went down in my life you know the kitchen at the house was huge now right. i'm in an apartment and everything it's, it's it's less of a pain in the butt because an apartment kitchen is what like it's like 10 by 10 maybe uh 15 by 15 if you're lucky i don't know my uh my eyes are and i was never really able to to judge distance and i'm an engineer so i feel like hey, hey if you you know, just because you can't really do something doesn't mean you can't uh, pursue a career that will uh, give you an enjoyment or fulfillment or, you know, if all else fails, a lot of money. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a good enough job where I'm not on GoFundMe for, for rent, you know, and I'm not, I'm, and once again, I'm not bashing that, you know, the, the world sucks. And the fact that we have people who have to do that, it's like, it's like grotesque, but I don't know. I have a I have a very hard time indulging. That has been a lifelong issue for me. And now that I have stable employment, I am trying to get into that habit of being able to spend money. But the general vibe of America has validated my sicko mindset of hanging on to what I have in the event of an emergency. <laughs> but then there's also that contradicting viewpoint of what if something gets really bad and then money's nothing, and then it's like, what were you saving for? <laughs> So it's hard as someone who has an emergency mindset at all times to reconcile that, but I'm trying to get better at it because the things I do get that I enjoy, like when I finally was able to get a PlayStation 5 or when I was finally able to make this PC, they have made my life not unimaginably better. I'm not saying that owning things is the key to happiness, but this podcast wouldn't be possible if I wasn't able to get this PC built and this the creative projects that I've made to this point, the video editing that I've done, the uh, YouTube video I made about Cowboy Bebop, the reason we're having this conversation now, it's all possible because I was finally able to just swallow my pride and get something and indulge in something that has made not only work easier, but life more fun. I can play video games now on my computer for the first time, basically ever. And they're relatively new releases too. My laptop could play video games from... 2006 2007 now i can have a game pass subscription and feel like i can actually participate in relatively new games it's not mind-blowingly good there is a uh, bit of a shortage going on because of cryptocurrency and the general state of the world 
but I do have a decent a decent rig for what for what it is. Yeah, and then you mentioned something that I, I'm very shocked. You were able to purchase a PlayStation Five. They don't. There's like three of them left in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Someone I know lucked into getting two of them, and I lucked into getting that second PlayStation Five. So I bought it at retail. I didn't have to go into the second secondary market, which is the death of all things for video games. I got a PlayStation Five now, and I was able to. It's so messed up because after all that effort, I was like, "Well, now what?" You know, <laughs> because <laughs> there's not a ton of must-play video games in the PlayStation Five, and now that Elden Ring is out, and there are some more games coming out, I've been enjoying those in the PlayStation Five system because the PlayStation Five is substantially a better rig than what I have on my play on my PC. But yeah, it, I, I did feel a little bit like a fool for a week or two because I was like, I don't even really have a PlayStation 5 game I really want to play that much. Astro's Playroom is fun. The pack-in game. There was just a second where I was like, I'm so fucking stupid. Why did I do this? <laughs> if I was going to buy a PlayStation 5, it'd be like, what franchise do they have that I'm really into? And, the, and right now, the only one that I feel like is there is Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of fell off after Final Fantasy 12. And it wasn't that, that it was a bad game, you know. It was a really good game. I just didn't finish it. And then, like... I don't know. Was 13 an MMORPG? It was the same as 11 was? or 13 was like a 10 situation where it had a bunch of sequels. But I remember 13 was a single player campaign that was fairly controversial because of how linear it was. And I remember there being a 13-2 and then another one that's like Final Fantasy 13 Lightning Returns. I just remember at the time when those games were coming out, people were just shitting on Final Fantasy 13 a bunch. <laughs> Gamers do that, you know, and I'm looking at the Legend of Zelda series, um, made the first game for the GameCube. It was uh, Wind Waker and waves and waves of people yelling about the cell shading. And it's like, come on, guy. Unsurprisingly, it was a fun game, probably one of my favorites in the series. But like with Final Fantasy, it was sort of like, I, I don't know. I just sort of felt because I never got the PlayStation and then like, the other franchises it has, like Metal Gear, and you know, I guess Manu is going to make me play Metal Gear at some point. Um, yeah, there's that. But at the moment, none of the Metal Gear games are immediately readily available like they used to be. Two and three were taken off of all the storefronts because of an issue with the uh, archive footage that was real footage that they used. So those have been taken off the store. Four has been taken off of PS Now, and that's only playable on PlayStation 3 consoles. And on the PS now service because the architecture of the PlayStation three was so wonky. And then V is readily available on basically everything because that was a multi-platform release. And it's a relatively new game that came out in 2015 revengeance. Similarly, the spinoff game that is on all digital storefronts right now. Yeah, no, there's no news of those games being readily available on the upcoming PlayStation plus service that they're doing where they're putting a bunch of classic games on there. That things are in a weird state right now. It was never easy to play these games, but now it's damn near impossible to play the vast majority of the series legally. So we're talking about like Nintendo levels of uh, let, allowing the, the games to fall out of viability. Konami is sub Nintendo in terms of preserving their games. The Silent Hill games have been impossible to play since the PlayStation 2 era. Basically, they did a PlayStation 3 re-release like an HD collection for the Silent Hill games, and they were widely considered to be the inferior versions of those games. They did a lot of creative liberties that did not make sense. I think 
infamously there was a sign written comic sans <laughs> so so a lot of a lot of mismanagement at konami when it comes to preserving their games even the ones with castlevania and them generally but this is sort of spinning us into a bigger conversation about you and your video game taste so i have to ask well you know there's no one more gatekeepy than the gaming community so tell us a little bit about your relationship with gaming what kind of games do you enjoy playing what have you been playing lately? What does TH's Portrait of a Gamer look like? TH's Portrait of a Gamer has barely changed since he first started playing the NES way back in the in the late 80s. Christmas of 1989, I came downstairs and I was living at my grandmother's house at the time because the whole thing, but it's a whole family thing. But I came downstairs and I was like, I'm not going to get a Nintendo. I need a Nintendo. And under the Christmas tree, there was a Nintendo Entertainment System. And uh, when we moved out into our in my parents' own home around New Year's, put that Nintendo on the TV, and it was black and white, and the sound didn't work, but I played that Nintendo for hours and hours. So love uh, PTH's Portrait of a Gamer. Loves platformers, obviously. I grew up playing Mario. Mario is my Mickey Mouse. And the Nintendo was just as problematic company as Disney, even though on a, small, a smaller scale. So it tracks. I loved all the franchise games and I played Dragon Warrior. So I got into JRPGs and that sort of dovetailed into me playing Pokemon on the handheld systems. And, you know, I got into the sports simulators, even though as they got more realistic, I fell out of love with them even more. Like uh, my platonic ideal of a sports game was like Tecmo Super Bowl, RBI Baseball. Uh, NBA Jam, you know, things that give you the idea of what the sport is, but they're also nowhere near as realistic as they could be. Um, same with Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Uh, nowadays, I'm very much into the retro stuff and, again, platformers, adventure games, JRPGs, and, and puzzle games, too. I love puzzle games. When I'm in between games, I will invariably retreat to one of three titles, Tetris, which in this, in this environment, it's Tetris 99. You know, I, I can play against 98 other people and I've gotten to be pretty good at it. Uh, not elite level. I think I've won twice mm -hmm. um, out of like a, a thousand or more turns trying to play it. You know, Tetris has always been one of those difficult games because um, once the speed of the blocks drop and you kind of have to have really good dexterity and my dexterity has a ceiling. So. Right. And it, that doesn't bother me. Um, the, th the second one's Dr. Mario. So when the 64 became available and they still had some problems with lag and I wasn't ready to play Zelda on it yet. So I just sort of spammed Dr. Mario 64. And then the third one is more of a recent one. That I didn't get to play it until it, you know, the Sega Genesis online came to the Switch. But um, most people know it as Poyo Poyo, but I'm, I'm playing the version, uh, the original version that was released on the Sega Genesis. Uh, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Oh, yeah. It's gotten decent at it. It's a different play on the Dr. Mario slash Tetris Paradigm. Another thing I really enjoyed when I went to see Sonic 2 in the theaters, the, the coffee shop that he used as his hideout was called the Mean Bean. Hmm. It kind of tickled me a little bit. The puzzle games are sort of my, my fallback. I'm not like, if I get bored with a game or I'm done playing a game. Uh, right now, uh, Pokemon... They finally got connectivity with Pokemon Home with um, 
the Gen, the Gen 4 remakes, uh, Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl. And I put that down a little bit. I played it. it. It was okay. As far as the remakes go, it's the clear fourth place out of the four that they've done so far, um, just because they didn't really add as many bells and whistles to it like they did for the other ones. But the draw for that was I, I was able to, I'm able to sort of rebreed some Pokemon that I had that I, that I bred for, um, you know, for stats. So I could use them in online play or the battle tower. So I'm in the middle of doing a bunch of rebreeding right now. Um, before that, I was really, I played Majora's Mask. And then before that, I played through Earthbound and then Final Fantasy VII before that. So, again, a lot of retro games. I never got to play the Brilliant Diamond, Shimmering Pearl. Shimmering, is it Shimmering or Shining Pearl? Shining. Yeah, I never got to play the Gen 4 remakes. I got one of them as a gift for my friend who's into Pokemon as well. He really only, like, he only really plays Pokemon games in general. And he said, yeah, I don't like this one. There's nothing special to it. Gen 4 was already kind of considered the weakest of the mainline games for a while and the remake of it being basically one for one remakes of the diamond and pearl games with just a little bit of a 3d texture upgrade to it. Didn't really do it a lot of favors. Yeah. From what I understand, Pokemon platinum is a more thorough remake of pearl and diamond than these remakes that came out last year were. So that was the third, the third game, you know, they, you know, they had bright blue, yellow, and then, you know, gold, silver, crystal. And it was sort of like that third game. But there are some cool things about these Gen 4 remakes. And then mostly it has to do with you can catch the uh, the event Pokemon like Darkrai, Arceus, and Shaman. I said, yeah, it was a 1-1 remake. If you go back to even uh, the Omega Ruby and, and Alpha Sapphire, which I consider to be, you know, amazing. Like, they exceed it. And I love Gen 3. Yeah. They added, like, Swarm Bat. And they uh, they incorporated Mega Evolution, and there was a rich post game. It was the first. They sort of do the post game now, where you can catch every legendary from the from the prior games. You know, but that was the first one they did. And it was such a such a really good uh, wrinkle on it. So to, to have that, and then go to the BDSP, and it's sort of like, yeah, they they fumbled the ball on that. Yeah, I'm not a huge. Pokemon multiplayer person. I do like the games for their social components to it, but I'm not a big battler. I try to do a little bit of competitive with Sword Shield because it looked a lot more accessible, but in my heart of hearts, I'm just not built for that kind of competitive environment. So for me, Pokemon games sort of live and die by their single player post game content. Um, and the, good. And the, the sort of, I'm not, I thing is, I talk a big game, I, I breed all of them, but like I suck at battle. Mm-hmm. So I don't do it as much as I should. And I've played Legends Arceus. I love Legends Arceus because it is a game with a huge single-player focus, and there's not a huge emphasis on any multiplayer thing at all, as far as I understand. it's all. One, there's, is there any kind of multiplayer component to it? No. Uh, not yet. But it did have that thing where if you did have the online on, you could pick up other people's satchels and get little item yes. bonuses for that. But That was the only one. Arceus really de-emphasizes battling and really changes up how it does it. So I guess there isn't really a huge emphasis on the multiplayer stuff for that reason. But Arceus is also the most fun I've had in a Pokemon game since Black 2 and White 2, which was probably more than a decade ago now. So I I love Legends Arceus. I liked Sword and Shield, don't get me wrong. And I kind of gave up on the Sun-Moon generation. I understand Ultra Sun, Ultra Moon were probably the better games, but I just already felt like I sunk too much time into Sun and Moon and they were just way too texty for me just too much story stuff going on there 
the um, Ultra Sun, Ultra Moon was better because you could catch more Pokemon and they finally uh, upgraded the decks so you could have the entire Pokedex in the game. The, what they did to the story, like Sun, the Sun Moon story was superior. I wouldn't know because I was a bit tired of all the talking and the Sun and Moon stuff. It didn't feel like the story yeah. justified how long it was taking. But I wish I saw it through because I do feel guilty about not having finished a mainline Pokemon game. Arceus was just really like, this is what I love about this series. This is, there's just so much potential in this. It's not perfect, but it is a really, really damn good game. Yeah, it's it's up there for me. I think my favorite generation overall is three, mainly for nostalgic reasons. I think generation two is probably my second favorite after three. But besides those two, I think Arceus might just be my favorite Pokemon thing. It's it's a good game to sort of latch on to. I think along with Breath of the Wild and Hollow Knight, that's that's the three games you need to have for the Switch. Yeah, and Mario Odyssey for me too. And Mario Odyssey was very good. I just didn't get into it the way I got into Galaxy and Galaxy 2. I mean, I still loved it. It was great, but I don't think there was, I think there was maybe one game I bought for the Switch, but I mean, I'm very choosy when it comes to the games, so I stick to the mostly franchise titles. So so the, my Switch library is, you know, Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey, Mario Maker 2, Sword and Shield, our Legends Arceus, um, Brilliant Diamond, actually, I have, I have Shining Pearl, Smash Ultimate, uh, Link's Awakening, Skyward Sword, just to select indie games that people suggested to me. And, you know, uh, there was Hollow Knight, which, God, man, that was such a great game. I, re- I uh, still need to play Hollow Knight. I played the first hour of it a few years ago, and I own, like, two versions of it because I bought it on the Switch very early. And then <laughs> it became a free game on the PlayStation Plus one month. So I don't have an excuse. And I know <laughs> I'm going to love it because I love those types of video games. I love Metroidvanias. I love whatever the subgenre of Souls game is. I do enjoy that style of game, so I know I'm going to love it, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, I mean, you, I think if you, if you like platformers, you know, if you like, if, it's, it's very much platform, and then there was, um, it feels like Super Metroid, only with with uh, Eldritch Bugs. I mean, I'm, um, sold. I'm sold. Like, I'm sold on the concept, and I liked yeah. it. Just, uh, when people say Metroidvania, it's like, the last Castlevania I played was Castlevania 64. Really? So it's like all my Castlevania frame of knowledge is, you know, segmented stages. So you haven't even played Symphony of the Night then? No, that's sort of on my bucket list. Symphony of the I'm Night sort of, fucking rocks, dude. I'm just yelling at Nintendo, put it, well, actually I can't even just yell at Nintendo, like I yell at Konami and Nintendo, put it on the Switch. But then the other, the other game I really liked was just because of how much of a meme it was. And then I end up, turned out to be a really, really good game. It was Untitled Goose Game. And I think those types of games are just really conducive to the Switch in general. I consider my Switch to be, number one, my Nintendo machine, but also a very good indie machine in general. If I have the option to play an indie game on my computer or on my PlayStation or on my Switch, I'm going to pick the Switch because the portability of it really lends itself to these smaller titles so that's how i yeah. played ori in the blind forest which is also kind of a metroidvania and i think it's a very very incredible game beautiful visuals great soundtrack yeah i agree with that like i dead cells was another game oh i love and dead cells i spent so many hours on that was even before the last update where you could play as you know the uh, the vessel from hollow knight among other people and i was going through some games 
on you know the uh, the online version. The Nintendo sixty four uh, online console was really good because I got to play Star Fox again mm-hmm. and, and Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. But it's not good because some of the other games I played a whole lot of aren't available on it. I'm still waiting. Probably never going to happen. But 007 GoldenEye. Or even the Perfect Dark. I never played Perfect Dark, but I heard Perfect Dark was sort of like the, an improvement on that. You know, and it's sort of like, oh, I'd play it now uh, because it would be available to me for free. But playing it then, I had to, buy, had to pay 60 bucks for it. So it was like, eh, I don't think my parents going to buy me that. <laughs> not, not when, uh, you know, I'm asking them for uh, the wrestling games that were on it or whatever. So let's talk about sports a little bit because you said earlier that you have a weird relationship with sports games. And I know that you're a big sports guy because I've listened to the mental health break and I've read some of your newsletters and I see how it dominates our gaming group chat a lot talking about sports. So tell me a bit about what kind of sports games you do enjoy. I know you said tech mobile and you said that they kind of got away from it. What recent sports games have you liked? If any, well, I think the last time I played a sports game, that uh, was current was um, one of the Madden games uh, back when I was, uh, I had an Xbox one. It was, it was an Xbox one or it was an X, one of the Xbox systems. I, well, I, I bought Madden for it. And it was fine. My brain, when I'm playing a video game, I'm not trying to, to strategize. Probably the most I'll think about is sort of like a JRPG where I'm trying to build for a special battle. With sports, the sports game, especially football, you've gone from having eight plays available to you at Tecmo Super Bowl, but I think it was perfect for sort of a, a video game setting, a nice arcade setting, to where you're a simulator and you can have different packages and everything. And you have these vast playbooks. It's getting so much, so much more sophisticated and and then there's audibles and stuff. And it's just like you're being a real head coach. And you're not even you're not even just the head coach. You're the offensive and defensive coordinator. So you're doing like three jobs playing a video game. And it's just it's like unless you're playing it on easy mode, it's hard to sort of do that and also not lose horribly every time out. I mean, I, I'm sure I can play a basketball game and not have to worry about that because, you know, basketball is when you're playing a video game version, you're not calling set plays. I don't know. I'm a football guy. Like football is my sport. That and pro wrestling are my pro- problematic phase because of how they chew up the people who play it and spit them out. But <laughs> I just can't get up for the violence, I guess. Are there any recent wrestling games that you've enjoyed? <sighs> Not recently, just because the WWE games have dominated the market. They've been terrible since for the last like 20 years. <laughs> um, the last game that I played that I really loved was uh, WWF No Mercy for the N64. So it used a very specific engine, um, that the virtual pro wrestling engine that people loved. It was used in, in virtual pro wrestling, virtual wrestling 2, and then it was WCW NWO World Tour, WCW NWO Revenge, and then WWE bought the rights to that engine, and they did WrestleMania 2000 No Mercy. And those are like five, like six of the greatest wrestling games ever. And there's rumors that the new all all elite wrestling game is going to use that engine. So I'm very intrigued for that. And plus, I watch all elite wrestling. All the most of the wrestlers I love are working for them, and so I'm looking forward to that game. I'm hopeful that you get what you want and just get a good, satisfying wrestling game. I'm sorry that 
things have been letting you down. Would you consider yourself a bit of an old head because of your sensibilities and what you like from these kinds of games? Or do you think that they're just sort of getting away from you? Or do you think that they have just gotten worse over time? Uh, it's not that they've gotten worse. Sir. I've learned over the years just from seeing, you know, enough people grow old and, you know, lose touch with whatever, whether it be wrestling, sports, movies, music, whatever, that because they don't get it anymore, it's um, bad. Right. And that's the absolute wrong way to look at anything. I think games have gotten away from me a little bit, maybe because I just didn't, I, I stopped playing them after a while. I mean, there's another timeline where I don't get into whatever it is I got into and I just really start doing gaming. And who knows, maybe I'm playing like Elden Ring and or um, a, a Dark Souls game or the Death Stranding and uh, all these other games that are sort of the it games now, the big AAA games mm-hmm. or, the, or the first the first party console games that aren't Nintendo. Around the, um, the time of the uh, PlayStation 2, Game. I just sort of started playing games that were familiar to me. And I think that's fine as long as you realize that you're in a niche. You don't have to be the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. When you look at people in, in pro wrestling who pine for the times when it was a territorial business and people weren't doing half the shit they do in the ring today, what they really are pining for is a time when they were relevant. You know, like wrestling makes more money now than it ever has been. It's just all concentrated into one person, which is bad. I think when they there, there's a point where I think wrestling was better in the territory areas, but not because of the in-ring product or or the interviews or anything or the characters, but it because it all wasn't concentrated in the hands of one guy with people at the gates trying to get their share. On another podcast with a different focus, we could talk about how Vince McMahon is, abs- is the absolute. Oh, he's worst. history's monster, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this history he is uh, wrestling. He's the worst thing that ever happened to pro wrestling, and he destroyed it. I-, I would love for a game, for the gaming atmosphere to be all Mario all the time, like it used to be. But, you know, I'm happy knowing that Nintendo still is going to make Mario games. The strength of Mario Odyssey was it felt like a direct sequel to Mario 64, which is one of my top two Mario games ever. The other being Mario 3. Nice. Just because it's not popular or not as popular as, you know, the zeitgeist is. I mean, to say Nintendo is not popular be a, to be lying. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be available. It doesn't mean you can't indulge that, that niche for yourself. It's about finding your own personal fulfillment rather than demanding that everybody else has your same point of view. I mean, I appreciate your perspective here about sports games and your perception of them. You are absolutely right about, you know, wrestling having its problems as a sport. At the same time, it is also more popular than it's ever been. And it feels more accessible than it's ever been in the digital age. Yes. But there's definitely something going on where everything feels shittier. And it's not necessarily because the integrity of the players are worse or shifts to how these kinds of games are played or how these sports games are depicted. But there is like a corporate influence that you cannot ignore anymore as you get older and people become more politically involved and everything feels part of some sort of culture war. So it's oh, yeah. <laughs> WWE, it feels weird to indulge in because we all know how much of a huge piece of shit McMahon is. You know, I'm not a huge football guy. I've followed it for a while when I was a teenager, but I uh, am born in Virginia. So 
I am forever tied to the worst NFL team in the league, which is the Washington team that used to have no name and then have a worse name before that. <laughs> um, and the Snyders are history's greatest monsters as well. So I don't like that team. I don't like the the structure of that team. It's so funny, you know, um, for the Snyders to be the dance dance Snyder to be considered the, the greatest monster, history's greatest monster among football owners, which includes uh, Jerry Jones, uh, <laughs> Jerry Jones, you know, Al Davis, um, Jerry Richardson, you know, Jack Kent Cook, uh, who was the last, I think he was the last uh, NFL team when he was the owner of that Washington franchise now called the Commanders. Truly um, the, 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 the Mount Rushmore of just terrible people all consolidating around the NFL. Yes. And I know these names because these people are so uniquely bad that even though I don't actively follow the sport, their names are just there because you see it all the time among sports fans that I follow and just in the news and it's just awful. But that kind of translates into video games too because the people who are responsible for the, you know, the branding of the NFL, the executives that license these things out and they have money on their mind all the time. So things feel just less imaginative on a gameplay level than they ever have and it's you know there is definitely things are becoming more sophisticated there are things that have been changing and games are more complex as we've finally refined a 3d formula in the last couple decades but there's also everything is shadier now with corporate stuff nba 2k feels like the only prominent basketball game you can play madden feels like the dominant force where it felt like there were a wealth of options for football games. And with things like, oh, do college players actually deserve money? And they do. If you are a college sports athlete and people are making money off your image, you should be entitled to a piece of that pie. Things like that have also just made game development harder and also way more corporate. And it sucks. It genuinely sucks that things have to be one way because of just a bunch of suits who want to be evil. It's every, it's happening everywhere. So, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm afraid that in America, it may never get better, but that's for another podcast. I think we just see it, especially in sports, because it is a more communal game experience than a lot of stuff. People recognize sports. A lot of people have a connection to sports and they want to play these games because it feels like one, other friends in their group play it and Two, it's just great to be able to simulate something that you get to watch. So seeing that as a symptom of a lot of stuff getting worse, both on the actual sports side of things and on the video game side of things, it's really heartbreaking to see. And I don't have a huge connection to sports. Like I said, my sports shit is just super weird. I love following specific athletes because I think that they are fucking hilarious. I think (laughs) a lot of athletes are funnier than comedians. Marshawn Lynch, Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, Charles Barkley. Those are my favorite athletes just simply because they are entertaining people to watch. And I think Inside the NBA is one of the funniest TV shows ever. And I'm not a, I'm not a huge basketball guy. I think it's the most fun sport to watch minute to minute. But I will just watch clips of Inside the NBA online because I just find that shit to be immensely entertaining. Well, uh, basketball is a, um, is a global sport for that reason. You know, it's kinetic. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier for, I think, people to get into, go from casual to hardcore. It's, it's probably the, the easiest one, you know. You know, it attracts some really 
funny personalities. You know, three of the four people you mentioned were, were all basketball players. And, you know, it's, that's not the only one. There's Anthony Edwards in, in Minnesota. You know, mm-hmm. he, um, he's quite the character. Michael Jordan, you know, one of the greatest basketball players ever. Uh, he was quite the character for he's a he's a legit sociopath. So I mean, you look at look at him from afar. It's like funny how like how much of a you know an asshole he was. Oh, you know the reason why I have been kind of cagey about sports lately is the gambling aspect of it. Now the draft oh, yeah. of everything feels it it intensifies a lot of the negative around sports, and it feels like the March Madness stuff or just football as a sport in general, it's just so consumed by gambling and I hate gambling. I hate the principle of it. I do not resent gamblers. It is an addiction. It is a serious problem. I hope these people find help, but I'm not talking, I'm not one of those, Oh, it's about the integrity of the sport things because again, I am an outsider, but it has made things worse. And I do think that that is just yet another example of everything being a little bit shittier. Yeah. Uh, you're talking. I'm talking as someone who who indulges in um, gambling, like I do drinking. Um, they're both addict, uh, potentially addictive things, but I, um, I I manage to do it responsibly, and I pray that I keep doing it responsibly. But the idea that now sports leagues are embracing gambling has been destructive because now leagues are in partnership with gambling apps. Exactly. Now you got to question not the integrity of the players. I mean, I, I think players throwing games is something that I don't think is ever going to happen because I think the the money that they can get by performing on the field is going to be a lot more than they can get by gambling. What I think it's the officials and the officiating, and is the league going to like what's going to happen with the league? Is the league going to do anything to fix the officiating, or right. are they going to let the officiating be bad across the board? And it's bad across the board in every every. Every sports league, I'm not just talking like pros, sports, uh, pros, college, basketball, hockey, baseball. You know, you watch watch a baseball game enough and you see some you see some of these umpires, with their strike zones, inconsistent, small, large. And you wonder how they have jobs. Right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if I perform as poorly at on the job as, you know, Angel Hernandez does, I'd be fired. You know, when I lost my job last year, it wasn't because I was bad at my job. Right. You know, yeah, you see it and it's sort of like, what the hell? And so the league is going to not have an incentive to make sure the game is officiated 100% correctly because it throws it. They make a lot more money off these gambling apps. These gambling apps can make a lot more money. Right. The game, the house will win when there's more chaos. Precisely. My issue with gambling isn't that, oh, people gamble and gambling is a sin or anything like that. It's not like that kind of ultra conservative aspect of it in my head. I want to clarify, I think gambling is bad because it is stacked against the gambler and it creates an addictive cycle of trying to win because our capitalist culture wants us to buy into the idea that if you just keep trying at something, eventually you will hit it big. And all of capitalism is a gamble. That's why Every day is a waking nightmare for me, but it's very funny watching the movie, The Last Boy Scout, which I did a few weeks ago and seeing this early nineties, Tony Scott film written by Shane Black have the bad guys be people who want to make sports gambling legal in California. And Bruce Willis is just going around all of California, killing people left and right to keep sports gambling illegal. I now, I now think he is a hero for that. (laughs) 
Uh, rest in peace, Tony Scott. Rest in peace, Tony Scott. It's been a long time, but still, I hope he's I hope he's resting peacefully with Tony Scott since we're on the subject of it. Um, I really enjoy his movies. I like, I saw Top Gun in theaters last year, and I think that there's something to that movie that really lends itself to the theatrical experience, especially if you're seeing it with your best friend like I did. I really, really enjoyed his last film, Unstoppable, which I also watched a few weeks ago. And, and really, really good, propulsive, action-y type film. And The Last Boy Scout's really fun. And I'm sorry that we got off this beaten path a little bit, but I appreciate you indulging me on it because I know you're not a big film guy like I am. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, we, uh, I'm, I'm going to watch more movies now that I'm, well, I say I'm going to watch more movies. I've been watching sports and then playing more bit and playing video games when I've been home. I did watch the Sixers end their season, uh, at least the first three quarters of it, and turned it off. When <laughs> So but, um, you got your sports and I got my movies and now we can consolidate on our shared interest video games. Yes. <laughs> I've also sort of fallen off movies lately because there was a point um, for the first four months of the year where I was watching a movie damn near every day mm-hmm. or I got to, I'm at 120 movies so far for the year. And then I started playing Elden Ring and I just stopped watching movies every day because this game is so all consuming. And I know you said that you, haven't gotten to play a lot of games outside of the Nintendo sphere, but I do genuinely think that if you were to give the soul series a chance, you would like it because Hidetaka Miyazaki is openly influenced by the legend of Zelda and has cited a link to the past as one of his major influences, which brings us to today's game, uh, the legend of Zelda, a link to the past. This is the part of the show where we actually talk about the game advertised on the tin. We are going to talk about a meaningful and memorable video game, and you selected The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. I'll ask you about that in just a moment, but I did want to sort of give a little bit of background to the game for our audience in case you haven't played this. The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past was developed and published by Nintendo for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan. It was released in 1991 and in 1992 in Europe and North America. Imagine now the far-off year of 1992, exactly 30 years ago today, when people were seeing a Batman movie in theaters and listening to Nevermind by Nirvana. Crazy to think about it. I think pop culture might be stagnating. Anyway, (laughs) to paint you a full picture of what the gaming medium looked like in 1992, other games released that year include Super Mario Kart, Mario Paint, Kirby's Dream Land, Mortal Kombat, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Super Mario Land 2, Streets of Rage 2, the home console release of Street Fighter 2, Final Fantasy 5, Dragon Quest 5, and Mega Man 5. So to date, this is the oldest game that we have brought up on the podcast. We are firmly in the 90s territory now. I remember the 90s. You do remember the 90s? If you don't mind me asking. Because I lived the 90s. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, Tom, how old are you? I turned 40 in December, so I am 40 years old. I lived through the 80s, survived Reagan, mm-hmm. survived Bush, survived Clinton, survived Bush again. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you survived because, number one, you get to be on my podcast and be part of my content mill. And number two, you are a good guy, and I am super happy to have you here. I appreciate that. Of course. Done before. This is just sort of like an interesting era for me. This is the first game that we talked about that came out before I was born because I'm turning 26 in July. And this is a 30-year-old game. I'm sorry. 
this uh, dance is being led by a, a, a bit of a younger younger guy. Well, imagine if you will, when games cost sixty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And they and they and they didn't look like they were CGI to hell. Mm-hmm. The Super Nintendo era, uh, the sixteen bit era, was great because it was sort of crazy because it was you know Nintendo versus Sega. It was the first time Nintendo really had. Uh, competition and the the master system was was fine and good, but that didn't compete with the NES. So like we were had you had Sega households and Nintendo households, and I was always firmly Nintendo. But my brother got a Sega Genesis for his birthday one year, and so we were. I didn't get a Super Nintendo until after I, I bought one secondhand to play all the games I missed. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up with Sonic the Hedgehog after after Zelda. The Nintendo Entertainment System was great because. I fell in love with the first Zelda game. I played that for hours and hours. Yeah. And then Zelda 2 came out and it was a drastically different game than the first Zelda, but I played that for hours and hours and hours. And then Game Boy had Link's Awakening. I played that for hours and hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Of all those games, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past was the pinnacle of them. It was a, a game that took the paradigm from the original Zelda game and gave it depth that now seems, you know, it seems shallow now, but for the time uh, it felt on par with playing through a movie. That's uh, incredible. I have to ask you something about Zelda two, if you have a second. Sure. With the benefit of hindsight. And again, I am of a younger breed. I got to first play the original Zelda games as part of the collection of them that came with the GameCube for a time. So that collection came with Zelda 1 and Zelda 2, as well as Ocarina's Time of Majora's Mask, which I already played because my family had a Nintendo 64 uh, vis-a-vis my older brothers. I got to play those two films as a six or seven-year-old as a complete collection. That's a horrible thing to say, I must imagine, from your perspective. <laughs> you know, I get the privilege of if I'm not immediately rocking with a game, I can just play a different game in the series, no problem. You went from Zelda to Zelda 2, did you resent the difference? What was it like playing that game with like only the two other game to compare it to? Initially, I did. I thought, wow, why isn't this just a regular sequel? And, you know, being a petulant child, you know, I was only, I guess, eight, maybe 10 when I played Zelda 2 for the first time. But the thing is, because all the software was, was hard copied and you couldn't just go to game fly and, and download a game or whatever there weren't collections right right if you paid 50 60 bucks for a game you had to learn to love it yeah and there were some games i didn't learn to love but zelda 2 wasn't one of them it was you learn to appreciate zelda and zelda 2 together are a reason why i am very much the way that i am right learning to appreciate things for what they are not for what you want them to be when you spend some time with Zelda 2, you realize, oh, wow, the gameplay on here is actually pretty good. Oh, it's like a they combined the platformer with the, this adventure game. Oh, wow, this is like an RPG, only you're not doing turn-based. You're actually, you know, you control the action. And, oh, wow, the, the, the dungeon design is incredible. And then you walk out of it and, like, I think Zelda 2 is just as good as the first Zelda. That was the sort of, of the, the beauty of, of, of playing those games. Back then, we weren't spoiled with digitization, mm-hmm. but 
you know, we made do with what we had. And, and obviously, you know, the relationship between us and other kids in the area. And I grew up on a street in Philadelphia where there was a bunch of row homes. So I could always borrow games from friends. We still got around and played a bunch of games. And the more things change, the more things do stay the same, though. Sure. But I guess my, like, point I'm trying to find is I had the luxury and the ability to move on from a game if it wasn't clicking with me. And like you said, you, you have to invest $60 into a video game, hope the sequel is as good as the first one and reconcile the way things are different. You don't have to drop a game as part of a series with massive offerings over the past 36 years you can just sort of dismiss that one. It's like, oh, that's the black sheep. I don't really have to play that one. But you, you know, have you grew an appreciation for it because it was available to you and you had to work with it. And I can kind of see why Hollow Knight would appeal to you similarly because they're both platforming, side-scrolling dungeon crawlers with RPG elements. And I think Zelda 2 was kind of the first instance of an RPG also being a platformer. So it is a very influential game even if it is radically different from Zelda 1 and A Link to the Past onward. There is merit to it in terms of artistic value, but I do think, and this is just strictly my experience with it, even though in my head I was always like, oh, I think I like Zelda 1 more than Zelda 2, I remember being a six or seven-year-old and making it farther into Zelda 2 technically than Zelda 1 because it's easier to find your way around than it is in Zelda 1 where... It just sort of like puts you into the world and all the hints are esoteric, poorly translated, cryptic bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Two also has that, but there's also a map and a general sense of direction. It's a little more linear. It is. It, it makes sense. Um, I just want your perspective on that as someone who got to witness these games coming out live. Watching from afar the Super Nintendo come out and not having it was sort of like pain for me. When did you finally get a Super Nintendo? Around like 1999. Really? Yeah. You kind of missed that generation live then. Yeah. If I played back everything, I, I, I got all the hits. Mm-hmm. Like, back. So I played, I've been, I've played Super Mario World a billion times and I played, played through Link to the Past. I played Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, Super Metroid, uh, Super Castlevania IV. Mm-hmm. So you getting the uh, the SNES in 1999, did you get some time with the Nintendo 64, which was kind of winding down its lifespan by that point? Or was it also like you got to the 64 kind of late too? No, 64, I was an early adopter. Okay, great. Sort of to get back to A Link to the Past, uh, since its original release on the Super Nintendo, it's been ported to various Nintendo handhelds and consoles throughout the 21st century. It was ported to the Game Boy Advance in 2002 alongside the Four Swords multi-pa- uh, multiplayer game. Uh, fun fact, this is when I first encountered the game for the first time. I was I got a Game Boy Advance for Christmas, and it was the first game I got for it. It has since been ported to the Wii, the Wii U, the Nintendo 3DS, and a Nintendo Switch via the Virtual Console. And in the Nintendo Switch's case, the Nintendo Switch online service, which we've talked about before, and I have a lot of thoughts on, but we'll get to that towards the end. As for the content of the game itself, this is a relatively straightforward story because hardware limitations made it pretty common for things to be fairly simple during the 16-bit video game era. As the story of The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past broadly goes, Link is a descendant of a group of holy knights. 
One night, during a storm, he and his uncle hear the voice of Princess Zelda crying for help as the evil wizard, let me check my notes, Aghanim, Aghanim has imprisoned her. Your uncle goes off alone, but you follow him to the castle and find him murdered. You carry on the fight to save the princess, and along the way you meet the elder, let me check my notes again, Sahasrala, Sahasrala, <laughs> who mentors and guides Link through the journey and through various perilous dungeons and eventually an alternate realm called the Dark World, where the evil demon king Ganon, I know that one, <laughs> imprisoned for centuries. Link must use the power of the descendants of the Seven Sages and the Master Sword to free the princess and defeat Ganon, who intends to use the power of the mystical force known as the Triforce to bring destruction to the world. Epic story, basic on paper and very minimal in practice, but compared to the previous games, Fallout New Vegas and Metal Gear Solid 3, very straightforward and simple to follow. But at the time, it was it was a lot. Oh, no, I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking yeah. it. Oh, no, I know, I know. It's just how games have evolved. You know, even Zelda games nowadays tend to be more straightforward than anything, mm-hmm. uh, but there's still a lot more lore than way back in the day. But, but seeing the evolution from the NES all the way through the current generation has just been... I do feel like I'm a sage from the from the Zelda series. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you the, the evolution of how games became, you know, and how now we're actually playing movies now. You know, I'm sure... Dennis Villeneuve or whatever, kicking themselves that Hideo Kojima, Kojima, uh, there's a wrestler named Satoshi Kojima in New Japan Pro Wrestling. He pronounces, I think we pronounce the name Kojima, not Kojima. So Mm -hmm. if I go back and forth between the pronunciations, that's why. Someone like Dennis Villeneuve probably looks at at Death Stranding or something like Death Stranding, like, oh, wow, that could be like a movie, several movies, a a TV series. Mm -hmm. But we're making it in video games, so... Yeah, you know, I remember when Link to the Past was like playing a movie, you know. So it's it's different how perspective changes yep. over decades. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Kojima did a lot to bring the cinematic sensibility to video games because, and Manu's talked about this on the Mental Health Podcast. It was an early adopter of voice acting in video games. Had a very narrative structure to it. There's always been the term director in video games, but Kojima he really made video games feel like a movie in 1998 and it really became with the advent of cutscenes within the engine as it did in metal gear solid push things forward in a way and while i don't necessarily think that it's the best way to tell a story with an interactive medium i love the metal gear franchise and i don't resent kojima for implementing it but it has made a lot of video games less imaginative in terms of how to express a story which is why i love elden ring so much because a lot of it is implied storytelling a lot of it is simply observing an environment and drawing your own conclusion as to what has happened here. Stumbling into a 200-foot-tall skeleton conveys a lot that you cannot get the same way from a cutscene. <laughs> and, you know, there's more than one valid way to tell a story. I'm not saying that anyone who uses cutscenes is a chump, but it is just like something we need to consider as using everything available to us in the interactive medium. It's definitely like games that that urge you to explore. I think that's why the first Zelda game was so good because they didn't have direction. Mm-hmm. So you could wander into various areas. The only difference with the Zelda games is the that first Zelda game was like, there may have been one enemy and it was the Lionel. And in the 8-bit version of it, the Lionel was just a little like centaur lion kind of guy who shot swords at you. The way that you could shoot your sword if you had full life. Right. Uh, 
And that that enemy sort of became constant as the benchmark for your field enemies over the years. Um, obviously, evolving into the Death Dealer from from Breath of the Wild, where like you could spend you're going to spend more time fighting a lineup than any other enemy, except for maybe the enemies that have health bars coming on the screen, be it the Blights, Ganon, or uh, the Hinox, um, that enemy in the desert whose name escapes me, and the Stone the stone Talus. Right. It was kind of like a field boss in Link to the Past. You could only encounter it in the dark world up in the mountains, mm-hmm. in a very specific area. But like if you encountered it, and it's sort of like throwback to like Zelda, there are definitely areas that are locked to you, depending on what kind of items you have. Right. But you can still have enough um, enough leeway to get yourself in trouble in some scenarios. And that's why I think this is the mark of a, a really good adventure game, is if they let you explore and get in trouble in the process. Now, Link to the Past didn't always have that going on, but it had the spirit of it. You could explore a lot of different places, get lost, and have to venture your way back. Then you find yourself on a bed of spikes that you don't realize that you need to have a cape to get across. But I think the mark of why I think Link to the Past is such a great game is because it, it was the, it, the 100% realization of top-down 2D Zelda. Um, it took that formula and sort of did so much with it. It was a, a textured story, a lot of items, stuff, a lot of lore in it that sort of became the bedrock of the games yeah. in the future. Every game in the series owes a little bit of something to A Link to the Past in terms of establishing the tropes of what we now know as Zelda. Examples of that, it is the first Zelda game to be set in new continuity. The first two Zelda games were directly connected to one another, Zelda 1, and the other one was literally called Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. It was a direct sequel. This is the beginning of the idea of what would become the Zelda timeline. We'll get back to that later. Uh, (laughs) Though it's fairly obvious this is intended to be a sort of alternate version of a myth for all intents and purposes in the terms of actually interacting with a game. It's kind of like a soft reboot. It's a distant prequel to the events of Zelda one and two, hence the title, a link to the past in practice. It doesn't have any major thematic connection or narrative connection to the first two games. It just has here is Zelda for a new age and enjoy this new experience with link and Zelda and Ganon. We talk about the Zelda timeline, but it's so funny. The, the, the first three Zelda games outside of Link, uh, Link's Awakening are all on the darkest timeline. Like, if you look at it, like, they're all on that leftmost branch where... Link's Awakening is on that, too. Uh, yeah, but it's it's sort of not... It's it's a, it's a the first, one of the very few ancillary. Like, there's Link's Awakening, Majora's Mask, and something else. Maybe, I guess, the Oracle games, too, and Minish Cap that aren't tied to the... Triforce Saga. Mm-hmm. They're like their side quests for Link that involve Link and something else. But those first three games are all in the darkest timeline. And it's so funny, the concept of the Zelda timeline does not come into play until like after Ocarina of Time, which is the nexus point of all the games. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's the first one to start, that'd be set in a new continuity, though like you said, the idea of there being a Zelda timeline doesn't really ingrain itself into world the lore and mainly in the minds of its fans until ocarina time which deals with split timelines and then it's the first game to give link a paternalistic mentor figure at the start of the game in this instance it's his uncle and in subsequent games he'd have figures like saria and ocarina of time 
uh, his grandma and Wind Waker, Russell and Twilight Princess, and so forth as his mentor before he goes on his hero's journey properly. Uh, it's also the first instance of the Master Sword, which would become a huge, huge fixture in the majority of the Zelda games going forward. Uh, it is the first instance of the parallel world being uh, a theme in gameplay. Uh, in this instance, it's the Dark World. Ocarina of Time has the future and the present, or past, however you want to look at it. Majora's Mask takes place entirely in an alternate world, as well as Link's Awakening. Stuff like that. Uh, obviously, the Oracle games also deal with that, too, in the various seasons that you go to in Oracle of Seasons and the various timelines that you visit in Oracle of Ages. Parallel Worlds becomes a huge, huge fixture in Zelda games, and it's established here with your switching between the Dark World and the Light World of Hyrule. Even like Skyward Sword, there's the sky and the ground. Sky and the ground and Skyward Sword. There's the big world and the little world and Minish Cap. There is... Twilight Princess has the Twilight World or whatever it's called, and then the world that we live in. And Wind Waker is obviously the new world, the flooded world, and then the Hyrule world that is underwater. I think every single game does have a variation of that, except I can't think of one instance of it in Breath of the Wild because it's kind of a back to basics. But Breath of the Wild is also that that Hyrule map, I think is the definitive Hyrule map because it's so big and it's sort of it takes the concept of, I don't know if it was introduced. I, I didn't play it. I, the only game I haven't played is Twilight Princess. Right. Uh, the, the mainline games. But it takes the uh, the concept of of, of the Elden, uh, Lanayru, and um, Farish lands, mm -hmm. puts them in a place, and it has all different kinds of provinces. And it's it's, a huge, it's uh, Breath of the Wild is my favorite game, although we're talking about Length of the Past. Is, it, the distinction between most important and meaning the game that means the most in the best game. And I guess we can talk about that a little bit later, but yeah, it's, it's such a great game because that map is so huge and it gives it, it's it's the definitive high role to me. I think we take for granted how important parallel worlds are to the themes of Zelda games, and I think we also take for granted how, at least I think we take it for granted now, how much of a step forward and how impressive it was to be able to do parallel worlds on the Super Nintendo system because the game has to put two different versions of a map into the game. And that combined with the fact that this is the first Zelda game to really go vertical in its map design, especially with the dungeons where you have multiple floors and going from one, you can fall from one floor to another floor and use that to solve puzzles. That verticality, I mean, I, no, sorry, well, Zelda 2 does have verticality, but on the side-scrolling yeah. level, but obviously I'm just saying like there's a lot more vertical puzzle solving in A Link to the Past, and that becomes a big deal as they transition into the 3D games and whatnot. Yeah, it basically laid the entire ground, uh, it laid the entire foundation for, for Ocarina of Time. It is. I mean, Ocarina of Time feels like a remake of A Link to the Past strictly in how they do the parallel world stuff. And also the other thing that this game establishes the game structure. Many subsequent Zelda games typically will have a three dungeon run that functions as like the early game tutorial to get you used to the basic systems of the game before you transition into the next part of the game as things ramp up. I mean, we're giving examples. Uh, Ocarina of Time obviously has like the three dungeons that you do before you go and get the Master Sword. You do two dungeons in Wind Waker technically, and then you do the Fortress before those dungeons. So it's it's kind of three, but there was a planned dungeon that was cut before you get that third yeah. stone. So it's a technical, it's a gimme, but that still counts. Same thing with Twilight Princess. Before you get the Master Sword, there's typically like three trials you have to go through as Link before you get it. And that's sort of established here. 
the point is in terms of advancements in quality of life improvements and how it establishes the tropes going forward. This is the Zelda game. Yeah. The, it's the most, it's, it's the most important game for that reason, but it's also, I guess, elementally, you know, it, it, you get the sense of humor in the game uh, that, that st- starts it. There are the different environmental elements. Uh, a lot of the enemies start out here and, and you get the, the sense of wonder that wasn't present in the first two games. You think about mm-hmm. the first Zelda game, because you, there's no villages and everyone lives in caves. So it feels very much like a post-apocalyptic wasteland where you're a soldier of fortune. The second yeah. game you know, has the towns everywhere, but it, it's so fundamentally different from every other Zelda game that came before or after it that it's almost like its own game in its own orbit. And linked to the past, there's Kakariko Village, and there are people dotting all over the land. And you get all the first landmarks are named Lake Hylia. Um, Death Mountain actually is called Death Mountain rather than just implying it from the game guide. You know, even the little quirks are there, like being able to strike the chicken. They're called mm-hmm. cuckoos. You strike the chicken, and if you strike it too much with your sword, a whole swarm of uh, cuckoos is going to come after you and try and, and murder you, which I, I think is pretty, yeah. it's a pretty good lesson. You know, don't screw with things that aren't enemies. Don't fuck with the cucks, man. That's just general internet advice. Yes, <laughs> yes. But yeah, you're right. There's so much like we could talk for hours about what this game introduces and how it establishes the identity of it. But I want to talk to you about this game and what it means to you. So you talked about it before and how foundational Zelda one and two were. How do you think this game has shaped your taste in the years since you first played it? I think it's really the benchmark that of which I, I judge every, every Zelda game, every adventure game. I, I fell in love with this game for several reasons. One, because even before I owned my own Super Nintendo, like whenever I could have a chance to play a Super Nintendo for a prolonged period of time, whether my cousin's house or whatever, I would play Zelda. Just the wonder of going through it and having this these dungeons that were fully realized, fully formed, and had, you know, they weren't just carbon copies of each other in sort of different shapes, like in Zelda One. There were themes yeah, to there it. Were yeah, themes, and it grabbed me. Zelda One: Link's Awakening were the two games that were the one part of the epoxy that sort of went down, but links, the link to the past was, was the one that cured it and made my love for Zelda eternal mm-hmm. like over Mario, over Pokemon, over Metroid and final fantasy and Mega Man and Castlevania. There was an ep- the epic sense of wonder. And that starts when you first walk into Hyrule castle and the music cues it. Koji Kondo, him and, you, and Nobu Yuamatsu are two of the most influential musicians in my life. And Koji Kondo, because his work on Zelda, mostly on Zelda, he did Mario and Star Fox too. But his work on the Zelda series has just been like foundational. Koji Kondo is the composer that I personally compare other video game scores to because, I mean, it's the sound of my childhood, first and foremost, but they're just damn good songs. And I wish we would have that kind of imagination in more mainstream games because it feels like everything's going more subtle or just more blending in with the background. But these all feel epic and immediately earwormy, especially since a lot of them are fairly simple tracks and... Not in, a ne- not in a negative way. I think there is a beauty to it because these leitmotifs reoccur in subsequent com- more complicated compositions. Yeah, he is, to me, the definitive video game composer. Uh, continue with your yeah, point. Yeah, I think if you look at... Let's compare Link to the Past with Breath of the Wild in terms of the songs. Um, 
Link to the Past has the, um, you know, the, the reworked uh, Overworld Overture from the first album, which it sounds modern and it sounds all gussied up. The, 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 the gussying up of the, of the Overture. But then there was Hyrule Castle, which that theme is just amazing because it actually, it gives you the sense of both grandeur of stepping into a castle gives you, but also the tension of the turmoil of all the guards inside of it with their, their spears bare trying to kill you. You've got the Kakariko Village theme, which come, pops up for the first time here. It's, it gives you that quaint sort of, ah, but it, without being sort of a background theme. And then there's the dungeon themes. And then there's the, the magnum opus, which is the dark theme, which was an inversion of the overture for the light world, but also its own song altogether. So you have all these songs in that game Plus, like, the Ganon theme and Zelda's Lullaby pops up here first, even though it's not called Zelda's Lullaby yet. It all pops up here, and it's all both, you know, assertive without, you know, being any too in your face. When you shift to Breath of the Wild, all the music is muted outside of, like, some of the stuff from Hyrule Castle when you're fighting. Right. If there are bigger songs during moments of intensity, like when you're fighting an ancient... Uh... I can't remember the name of it. What are those things called? The 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 the, the four-legged spider ancient creatures. I'm, I feel so bad for not remembering because it is one of my favorite games ever. But uh, yeah, when you fight those you know creatures in the overworld, like that that very intense theme will play. And then, like you said, there's the music when you're actually in Hyrule Castle proper towards the end of the game, and then there's the boss battles. But it is a very subtle score otherwise. And that, that, that's what I think is missing a little bit from Breath of the Wild. I think that's, that's, that's one of my two minor complaints about the game is the music could be a little more assertive and the overworld could have a little bit, have a few more pods of enemies. I do agree with you on the pods for enemy piece. I do think that that is a little too empty in terms of combat situations. I mean, like you look at a link to the past and that is a big world where there's something happening in every screen. Uh, I don't need it to be that intense. I don't need it to be a bullet hell game, but I would <laughs> like a little bit less. I would like a bit more hostility in this isolated environment. And the thing about that is like that when the, you do battle, you come into an encampment of Bacoblins in, in Breath of the Wild. It's that's one of the best parts of the game, man. You know, you're you're fighting, you got like half a dozen Bacoblins and it's just you versus them. And you got to think on your feet. I want a little bit more of that only like I want the variance of enemies. Like there, there are so many different enemies in the Zelda um, bestiary. Like you couldn't put tectites in the game, the little the the, the little spider jumpers. Oh, yeah, they aren't. Or, there. Um, it's basically just bacoblins, lizalfos, um, moblins, and then the moblins, lionel, and and the octoroks. And then there's like the big one-eyed ogres. I think that's a, yeah, the hynoks. Yeah, there is some. I will dispute the score. I do think that the score in Breath of the Wild is wonderfully realized. I do understand the reflexive desire for more present score but especially considering the previous zelda games and how fantastical and how in your face it is about exploring a world but i do think it serves a narrative purpose in breath of the wild in terms of having that isolated feeling of exploring a world and quiet um and when the score does come in it is always perfect and it's always well utilized there is that side quest where you are slowly building a town and as you add more and more citizens to it, the score becomes more complicated for the town. When you do go into certain villages with distinct uh, people in it, like the 
area with a bunch of Zora or an area with a bunch of Gorons. The music is distinct and has its own little flavor to it. Yeah, you are your your concerns are valid. I'm not saying shut the fuck up. It's all tastes, so you know people have different. But I think it's funny you were talked about the town. I, did, I don't think I ever did the, the, the town you build side quest in, in Breath of the Wild. But you get that in um, Legends Arceus too. Yeah, you do. I remember that because I thought like, <laughs> oh shit, this is like Breath of the Wild in this way too. Uh, with I guess what is supposed to eventually become Jubilife. Yeah. That is one of my favorite things in musical composition is adding a new layer to something as it progresses. You know, like I said, if you do want a more bombastic score from Breath of the Wild. I'm not saying it's wrong of you to say that, but it is, it does serve a thematic purpose that I think it does realize really, really well. Yeah. And that's just, it's all preference, it's all preferences anyway. Some people like, it's just like some people like lo-fi beats to chill with and some people like heavy metal, you know? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of the heavy metal guy at prog rock. And it's sort of like when I listen to people, listen to stuff like the Koji Kondo soundtracks or, uh, Nobuo Uematsu doing his work for Final Final Fantasy series. You know, I, I hear so much of the the Baroque sort of uh, complication that I, I see in prog rock. I kind of figure that that Uematsu probably listened to a lot of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes, and, and maybe Iron Maiden and Metallica when he was before he became became a video game composer. And he wears that on his sleeve, and I appreciate that about him because, like, I think that's sort of a great thing to have in a video game. Video game music is so important. And no matter what you like about it, it's an important part. If you like the lo-fi beats, the chill and the subtle stuff, like you're going to find that the games that do that well speak to you a whole lot. That's another reason why the Zelda series is always hit because like all these games, um, Zelda 1 has the iconic overture theme. Zelda mm-hmm. 2, amazing score in that game. Like the Zelda 2 score is timeless. It still hits today. Link to the Past is great. Ocarina of Time, one of the best scores ever, you know, Majora's yeah. Mask um, sort of bars off from the Ocarina of Time, but has its own sort of quirks to it. Wind Waker, the um, the sailing theme in Wind Waker is just so, so pristine and perfect. To sort of go back to the uh, initial question that like brought all this out, how else is that like relationship with the game informed your taste in music? Like whether you hear something like that because like, oh, I like this because it sounds like Zelda or I like this movie because it looks like zelda or i like this uh book because it reads similar to zelda oh, yeah i think uh the star wars aesthetic mm-hmm. and like a futuristic like sci-fi and that's that's one thing that I, I always like and to be more specific sort of like that retro future from the original trilogy you know mm-hmm. and and really it's probably the the circling back on the ouroboros because y- you know george lucas probably read dune cover to cover yeah the, the Vianuve's Dune movie sort of evoked the way Vianuve made it. And it was intentional because, oh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Frank Herbert, the way he wrote the, the Dune universe was very retro future in that all the, the technological advances that humanity had made in his universe were controlled by humans. There's a retro future element to that franchise, to that sort of franchise altogether. So I think the way Villeneuve put it on the screen was very evocative of the, the original trilogy in Star Wars, even down to Arrakis being a desert planet. You know, it's like Tatooine. And again, probably kind of sucks saying it that way that, you know, Villeneuve was informed by Lucas a little bit because Lucas was definitely informed by Frank Herbert. Tatooine being a desert planet, I'm not saying he cribbed it, but it's, you know, the, the desert planet archetype may have been in his head already. Right. I mean, it's a matter of... Everything is a little bit of everything. And 
things yeah. can inform one another and then it informs back into it. Another example of Herbert to Lucas to Lucas to New Dune is Avatar The Last Airbender and its relationship with Star Wars, where Dave Filoni works on the first season of Avatar The Last Airbender. He goes on to do work for Lucasfilm uh, through Star Wars The Clone Wars, and he takes a lot of the lessons that he learns working on Avatar with him to Star Wars, especially as you get deeper into Rebels and it gets a lot more spiritual and philosophical. Now, the thing is, Avatar The Last Airbender is very consciously influenced by Star Wars in terms of its structure, in terms of its themes, in terms of the stakes. It is all evocative of Star Wars, but put into a a fantasy environment with a lot of Eastern influences rather than taking place in space. So Star Wars into Avatar and then Avatar into Star Wars. So it is inputs and outputs going back into each other to create what we like about Star Wars now. So, I mean, it's, it's not wrong for you to say that necessarily, But I do love your comparison from Zelda to Star Wars because I'm only now seeing why me liking both of those makes sense, where both of them have that kind of end of the world vibe to them, just like the death of technology and everything sort of being a little dirty, a little rotten and a little stagnated. So, I mean, that's that that's a good pull. The the, one of the themes in Zelda, you know, is. What's the uh, what's the timeline between Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild? You know, how many years pass? What's the the spread? That like the first calamity happened ten thousand years ago, uh, before the the, the before the uh, calamity Ganon's return and the events of, I guess, Hyrule Warriors uh, Age of Calamity, but the era where the of the divine beasts and the four champions and before Link Link falls in battle. So we're talking about a timeline of at least ten thousand years. Yeah, yeah. Hyrule, Hyrule has not technologically advanced at all. They're still living in a feudal community, um, no electronics, presumably no indoor plumbing. And there's a, a period of stagnancy. But why the reason, period of stagnancy? Because of constant war and upheaval, mm-hmm. because of one one presence, you know, and, and it's not a one to one comparison, but, you know, a colonizing an entire galaxy, right, is, is a scientific feat. But why hasn't the universe shrunk any in Star Wars? Why aren't they? Why isn't it like in Dune, where like apparently humanity has colonized the entire known universe, and it's because of this this omnipresent threat from people who misuse a great a power greater to them instead of the Triforce? It's the Force. You know, no, no try about it. It's just Force. There is no try. Only do. <laughs> it's not a one to one comparison, but there are definitely sim- a lot of similarities when you go with high fantasy. And not just the, the the beats that people take that George Lucas borrowed from Frank Herbert or J.R.R. Tolkien, or not the beats that Miyamoto uh, took from Lucas or from Tolkien or the Arthurian legend. You know, it's all a shared experience, but how we deal with that shared experience, how we interpret it is where our, our value comes from. That's why I'm not really too, well, I'm a wrestling fan too. So like, you know, if you're a wrestling fan, nothing's original. Everything is a gimmick. Everything has been recycled. If something original, then, you know, it, it gets recycled again and again and again. But that's why I'm not really, unless you like really copy someone else's work, like word for word, I don't really care about what originality is. You know, it's, it's interpretation is important to me. It's impossible to make something wholly original from an artistic standpoint, simply because we are all 
experiences of other people. The, the idea of life is inherently communal. You cannot be completely devoid of influence because other people have shaped your life in a nature way, in a nurture way, and in an artistic way. The things that you like are informed by your tastes and your tastes are shaped by your environment as much as they are just like what you like in general. But there's just so much that factors into that, that the idea of seeking out to create something wholly original is silly on its head, unless you're making something completely avant-garde and abstract, which in itself is a reaction to a sensibility of trying to make something original. So even that, it becomes, I'm not trying to get pretentious on here. Yeah. (laughs) It is always interesting to see how things consciously and unconsciously connect. And I guess the idea of that is as long as you aren't trying to say when you're making something like this isn't like anything else you've ever seen, as long as you aren't setting that expectation, I don't see a problem with directly lifting stuff. I mean, I I love Kojima and that's a guy who's very much like my main character is Kurt Russell. And this Mm -hmm. sequence is like the rock. And this sequence is like the fugitive. And it's like, hell yeah, dude, go on, go off. I love how you're interpolating this. It's yeah. You're you're, he's like a DJ. It's great. No, I love that way. You see the lore of star Wars and Zelda as thematically of the same branch where technology stagnates because of the constant wars and conflict. And really most of those progressions are made because of either setting out to do something to more efficiently oppress people or as a reaction to the oppressed needing to defend themselves against that. It's very similar to how in our real world, most of our modern technology of the 21st century is simply in the 20th century as well, are stuff that was made for the benefit of the military that is now becoming for civilians, like cell phones and highways. And tank. <laughs> yeah. I mean, video games themselves, they're very primitive ways of testing the launching of mis- missiles. And now they are, you know, a consumer product and they are a form of art. And it all started because they just needed to run visual simulations of, you know, killing people. It's weird to think about and upsetting, but also a reality that is reflected in art. We've talked before about how you said that Zelda Breath of the Wild is ultimately your favorite Zelda game, but you did settle on this game to be the centerpiece of our long discussion here. What makes this particular game more meaningful to you? I think the games, the experiences that you have, and this goes back to talking about old people saying it was better when I was young. Formative experiences are almost always going to hold more weight in your heart than things you experience as you get later in life. It's the reason why you remember your first kiss, even if it was a shitty kiss. Right. You remember your first, your favorite movie when you were a kid, even if you, like I I watched The Last Jedi in the theater and it was my favorite movie going experience. I loved it. But, you know, I'll still always just go back to episodes four and five. Mm-hmm. As my, as I saw them when I was younger, you know, when you see things as you're younger, and it cultivates your sense of wonder, and it cultivates your person, your your personality, and your your personality and your sensibilities. Very much, my sensibilities have been cemented by a link to the past. So I always owe more of a debt of gratitude to that game, even if you know I can recognize that Breath of the Wild is both a realization of the Zelda formula. And also a subversion of it in some ways where, you know, there are some things in that in that game that they didn't do in Zelda games before, but it makes the experience better. Right. It does feel like a reaction to the more narrative focus and making the game more linear. So it is a very conscious decision to make that 
Well, let's go back to basics here and see how close we can get to replicating the feel of the original Legend of Zelda with the sensibilities and the technology that we now have available to us. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about how our influences, I mean, the things that shape our tastes happen when we're younger, when we're more impressionable, when we're more forgiving of things to an extent, when we don't quite fully understand storytelling and narrative and structure and themes on the same level. So it is going to be a helpful comparison point until we do have that critical ability. We carry that with us. It's why Star Wars remains with both of us through multiple decades. So it's why, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's why I can be a prequel apologist, even though I recognize that at least uh, episodes one and two are shitty movies and episode three may be a shitty movie, but but we, I enjoy both. I enjoy all three of those movies a whole hell of a lot because they're Star Wars movies. And you say, well, yeah, episode one's a shitty movie, but for a Star Wars movie, it's good as hell. Yeah, it's – I keep going back and forth on the prequels. Uh, obviously, I was a defender of them well into my teens. I become an adult. Uh, you watch the Red Letter Media videos and you do see the – foundational problems with it and why they end up the way that they do. And you walk away with that and they're good points. And they're entertaining videos, but you do have to come back and then look at how Star Wars has been made since then, how the Disney machine has sucked a lot of creativity out of the blockbusters in general. And then you sort of have to adopt a stance of, well, at least it was auteur driven or, in another case where it's like it's nostalgic and there's just a lot of funny memes and there's a lot of meme potential to it and that's why I'll defend the prequels or there there's a lot of reasons <laughs> there's just like something uniquely weird about them and it's someone who is genuinely trying to do something and no one around him is telling him you can't do that because he's just like fucking watch me <laughs> I guess I'm landing on like yeah the prequels are what they are yeah I know I was gonna say like the red letter media video I think a lot of that early YouTube culture, it was people going for cheap, cheap dunks, but they were going for the wrong things. Like angry video game nerd, right? Had a whole generation of people convinced that Castlevania two was a bad game. Mm -hmm. And the reason why he did it was because of the, the, the script prompts on the screen. Like you couldn't skip past the, it's a horrible night for a curse. But like, if you press the a button too quickly, you would miss the book. That'll give you a hint in the game, but totally ignoring the fact that it was Castlevania 2. It's an NES game. Like, we don't love Legend of Zelda because the old man behind the waterfall made sense, right? Yeah. Just like those hints were mostly useless. And if you had, if you, if you wanted to advance it in a way, you either asked your friend or you like had a video game magazine or a game guide. And it was like a lot of us really did fine on Castlevania 2 without having to see a single word was in those hint books that were found in the blocks. So it, they, they warped people's perception. A lot a whole generation, these, the red letter media, angry video game nerd, nostalgia critic, people going back and just doing vitriolic hate videos about this stuff. And it was for like the most nitpicky of reasons. You see every once in a while, people say, Oh, they could have got the Eagles to save them from Mount doom and Lord of the Rings. It's like, Okay, so you, what you're saying is you didn't want to watch a story about about militarism and totalitarianism and brotherhood and friendship. You just wanted a quick fix. You don't know how to watch movies. I mean, everything falls apart. You become Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter where he's just like, 
you know, eclipses aren't that special. And it's like, aren't you accused of being a sex pest? Get the fuck out of here, man. And then it's just like, just if you don't like something, that's one thing. But if you are deliberately putting up barriers to not like something, there becomes a point where that is your fault. Criticism as entertainment is a can of worms because the, I mean, let me say this. Doug Walker is his own beast. The Angry Video Game Nerd was a character. He was a caricature of a certain type of archetype. People bought into all of the criticisms as sincerely put out. As the AVGN character evolved, a lot of this becomes murkier territory as he bears more responsibilities as an entertainer. Doug Walker was never a particularly incisive person, whereas the Angry Video Game Nerd, he is a filmmaker. He is a entertainer and he was just trying to make something for entertainment value. Doug Walker seemed to be chasing a high off of that and didn't really have number one, the the writing ability or the filmmaking ability to make an entertaining video. So he has to rely more on the actual persona of a critic. And with that, he bears a lot more of the brunt of the blame for number one, subsequent imitators and number two, just laziness as a virtue for these people. It's easier to just nitpick and bemoan something and screech at it than it is to engage with it critically. Whereas the AVG never really set that expectation, but the critic, he had the airs of like, on some level, I, you know, I personally believe these things, especially as that arc goes along for him. It's hard to like hide behind the character and then there's just like cinema sins who isn't really a persona and it's just like the most mainline version of that kind of critique presented in the laziest way possible i mean sorry for going off on a long tangent off that point but i i, I, I thought your podcast <laughs> it also you have to realize not that it doesn't have to be perfect to be enjoyable no and i mean i'm probably one to talk about criticism as entertainment because i have a 55 minute video about the recent netflix cowboy bebop but when I set out to make that, I wasn't like, this 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 show is worse than o- Obama or something like that. <laughs> no, it's just like, this show is worse than Family Guy or something like that. I'm not like just trying to like nitpicky. I was trying to grapple with something that was trying to be an imitation of something that I genuinely cared about. I'm not saying I'm a hero for it, but <laughs> I am covering yeah. my ass in case someone listens to this down the road and then also watches my YouTube video and is like, Hey, what the fuck, man? But, uh, going off that point where, you know, it is foundational and historical. You take a lot of stock in it in terms of like where you were in your life when this came out and how you were younger. This is still like one of your favorite games ever. And I want to know in terms of how that relates to other video games and how you think that relates to the Zelda series specifically is there anything in particular that this game does better than other Zelda games? I think it, it does the alternate world thing the best. The games where it where that alternate world thing was minor, like Majora's Mask. Like you're not you're in Hyrule for all of like 30 seconds before you fall down the literal rabbit hole in the terminal. And depending on what theories you read, either you you die or you go into an alternate universe. <laughs> uh, Wind Waker. The ocean's the world. You only go into Hyrule Castle on the bottom at the end of the game. Right. Whereas Link to the Past, very much a back and forth thing. And, you know, Skyward Sword, my my big critique about that game was sort of like the recursion of having to go up and down, up and down all the time. Like the, the ultimate take on the alternate world is that game. Um, I think 
combat wise, um, I love the 3D Zelda games, but I think combat wise, that the the 2D combat works the best, and they do the best sort of range of weapons. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that I think another game does better is Link's Awakening, where you can unequip your sword. You can have a bow and arrow and bombs in the in the same working inventory on your on, on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, you could if you press the buttons at the same time on Link's Awakening, you could you could shoot a bomb arrow. But like the the combat system, I think was the pinnacle. I, I think most of the other stuff that I think it does better is just sort of instill that grandeur. I think you can only really feel wowed once in your life mm-hmm. in certain situations, and everything else is just chasing a dragon, no matter how technically better it is. Right. And Link to the Past was the thing that made me say wow for the first time. And that never, and no other game in that series has been able to do that. That's something that's significant. I mean, I think you're right about the parallel world thing in terms of its execution. So in the, you know, use a Skyward Sword example, but also in Ocarina of Time, you have to go back to a central point and then switch out your sword to go back in time. It is a fairly, it's cumbersome. It takes a lot of time in a link to the past is pretty instantaneous because you have the magic mirror. The magic mirror takes you from the dark world into the light world. But and also the sound effect. So I love the sound effect. The sound effect's great. It's one instantaneous. The sound is really cool. And also how you have to make deliberate choices as to where you end up in the light world from the dark world makes it very interesting in terms of how to navigate both overworlds because you have to take both into account where you switch back and forth so there is the instantaneous part of it but there is also like you can argue that it is cumbersome that you have to find a portal to get into the dark world sometimes but with that i do have to argue that it is a creative decision that forces you to use switching between these things as a puzzle in a faster way than you can in ocarina time i'm thinking specifically of the spirit temple where you have to go back in time to solve a portion of the temple and then do the rest of it as an adult link. I think that a link to the past probably is like you said, the best and most simple way of dealing with parallel worlds. And to that point, the thing I like most about Zelda a link to the past specifically is how well paced it is. It is lean and reasonably accessible without needing a guide or manual to navigate through it. You can play the game pretty quickly relative to the subsequent Zelda games. And there isn't a lot of story to hold you back from just, you know, whacking things with a sword and solving a puzzle. I had a good buddy in college and there were weekends where we'd hang out nonstop for two days straight and power our way through a game. And A Link to the Past or Super Mario World and Mario 3, those would be the type of games we could knock out easily in a couple of days because it's, it's not a super long game. I, in this instance, I had to replay... I didn't have to replay it, but I wanted to replay A Link to the Past in preparation for this episode. Uh, So I played it. I played almost all of it in just the two days leading up to this. The last time I played through Link to the Past, I I was smoking a pork shoulder. Mm -hmm. So I was just, you know, you don't have to do anything to smoke a pork shoulder, but, you know, monitor the temperature a little bit. I put the shoulder on in the smoker, went in, turned the game on. I was done within the eight hours it took to for the thing to cook and then rest and then be shredded. It's not too, too long, and it is just a pure distillation of the Zelda experience. So if you're someone who's never played the Zelda series before, this would probably be the first game you should play because it is a great on-ramp. It gives you the tropes. It establishes everything. 
and it's pretty quick to play through overall. You don't have to sink a lot of time into this the way you would for Ocarina or Twilight Princess. Yeah, the time it takes you to get get, get out of Kokiri Forest and, and Ocarina of Time, you get to the Dark World in, in, in Link to the Past. So Yeah. And that your mileage may vary on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, I, I, that's a, certainly the reason why you should play Link to the Past first if you're trying to get into Zelda. It's a great impression of the series overall. And if you are someone who like has a difficulty playing 30-year-old games, I get it. This game has aged better than a lot of 30-year-old games that I have, or even 10-year-old games in some instances. But it is on the more challenging side of things. It does give you a good challenge that a lot of Zelda games might not. But there are ways of mitigating that challenge. There's the Cane of Burna and the Magic Cape that are optional items that you can find. And if you don't know how to find them, there's no shame in using a guide. Let's not, let's not pretend that you're a loser for using a guide. This is how people beat Zelda games before there was internet. <laughs> um, but if, oh, yeah. if, if you find these magic intensive items, they can make you invincible for a period of time while you get your way through a tough combat situation. And they will significantly reduce the time you would be spending backtracking through the beginning of a dungeon after a boss kills you. Because there are some pretty annoying death sequences if you don't have save states or something like that going for you. And the more modern re-releases of this game oh the the uh, big the big thing for link to to the past another thing that really um it introduced was the mechanic of instant instant resurrection catch a fairy in a bottle and that's been a staple throughout the entire game Mm -hmm. the entire series so that kind of goes into my next point which is no game's perfect there is no flawless game many come close don't get me wrong but there are games that will have issues. Uh, I don't want to hide behind the shield of time. You know, I don't want to say like, oh, 30 years doesn't do a game well sometimes. Like who who ages gracefully after 30 years? But I do want to have a discussion of what do you think this game could have done better or should have done better in your eyes? It could have been it could have been a few more dungeons. Oh, yeah? And I understand having two different world maps in the in the game it is pushing it in terms of size, but I mean, maybe there were some more optional dungeons. I think there was a lot of, what it does well is there's a lot of stuff to do in the game, side quests, but I think um, more boss level enemies to make it a little bit more um, meaty would have been a little bit better. I think that's really the big complaint is that when when the game is, there's not enough of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a good complaint. I'm trying to think of, because like I've read read complaints for almost every other Zelda game I've played, but Length of the Past is hard because it's not a flawless game, obviously. Right. But you know how it is when you look at something that you truly love and you don't want to say a cross thing about it. Right. You can look at it and then someone will say something about the game and your first reflex is, well, no, I like that part of it, but maybe they have a real good point anyway. And that's sort of my thing with, with this game. It's like, like I, I probably could if I thought about it more and played through it and, and scrutinized it. But I couldn't, I could, other than there not being enough of it, you know? Sure, that's not a bad problem to have. I kind of disagree with you because I think that A Link to the Past, great virtue, especially compared to the other games, is how well-paced it is and how you don't have to dedicate a lot of time to it. And it's all just like the pure distilled Zelda experience. But I mean, again, that doesn't conflict with your perspective. If you want more Link to the Past, there's, why would I argue it? That it's a great fucking game. (laughs) If I had to really nitpick, there's not a big structural problem that I can point to and say, 
bad, you know, but like there, there are like little things that annoy me or could have been implemented better that didn't have to be that way. I think the ice temple in particular, I don't like because it requires a lot of vertical movement and backtracking and the floors are slippery as is an ice temple would be. And I don't like that as a challenge, the slippery floor thing, which is a problem in most Zelda games. It's not unique to A Link to the Past, but the idea that your movement is not reliable, it doesn't really teach you anything about the game that a lot of the other mechanics of A Link to the Past does, like how you need to pick up a bush to find the secret entrance to Hyrule Castle in the beginning of the game. That's the game teaching you to look under bushes as, as a habit to find secret entrances. But you don't meaningfully extract anything from, oh, the floor is a slippery, what the fuck? And that's just kind of like, that's not really a challenge. It's just kind of like an annoying thing you're throwing in there. So those little things like that are kind of my beef with it. But I also understand that there isn't a single Zelda game that doesn't have a slippery floor at some point. Yeah. No, I th- think I agree with that now that I think about it. Is I don't sort of blocked out that ice the, the ice temple. I don't think it's nearly as bad as the water temple in um, in Ocarina of Time. So I think the water temple in Ocarina of Time's real big problem is again this pause menus because it's a lot less annoying in the 3DS version to go between screens to switch out items and play songs and have the right items equipped. You know, whatever. Yeah, the, the, I think the switch out is only is like kind of a minor problem. It's the fact that if you miss something, you have to start all the way over again going to the bottom of the temple to, to switch the water levels. And it's just like, uh, I hate having them maneuver through the water in, in this temple. And yeah. it's, that is also a fair point. The idea that you have to go to certain spots to change the water level in a place with a lot of verticality. And uh, you, you, you could argue that the uh, Great Bay Temple has a similar problem in Majora's Mask, but I think it's a lot easier to navigate than, than the water temple. But. I think the minute-to-minute enjoyment of the water temple in the Great Bay is better. I think that, number one, the visual design of everything, how it is kind of like a, an almost steampunky, pseudo-futuristic, I like that part of it. And I think the central area is just a lot more refined than the water temple. It almost feels like that design in that whirling pool in the middle is almost a direct response to how you had to navigate the water temple in Ocarina of Time. So it's not the worst in the world. I think I've warmed up to the Great Bay Temple over time, but water just sucks in early 3D games. <laughs> yeah, it's not even the worst. It's not even the, the least best temple. I like I, I generally like all the temples in um in Majora's Mask. My uh my big annoyance is the um Snowpoint Temple because the Goron Goron Link is is hard to control when he's got to uh, jump across the ramps. He's got to roll jump, mm-hmm. but also like the Goron Mask is so uh, such a fun tool when you're when you're battling Goat. Yeah, at the end, whereas like the um, fish Georg. Yeah, like he's such an annoying boy. Is the only boss I really had problems with when I replayed Majora's Mask. Fucking George, man. Um. The- <laughs> There, which version of Majora's Mask did you play? Uh, N64 on the uh, Switch. Was it the first time you've ever played the game, or is this a replay? I didn't quite... No, replay, but it's been a, a long time. Okay, yeah. So when I, if they re-release Wind Waker, it won't be the first time I played it, but I haven't played it, oh my god, in like 20 years. Shit, yeah, it's been almost 20 years since it was released, because it's like 2003. Um, yeah. No, yeah, there is a lot of... 
I mean, not debate, but there are problems that the Nintendo 3DS version of Majora's Mask set to fix in terms of quality of life. But then there's things that they changed that didn't need to be changed, like giving a glowing weak spot to all of the bosses or changing the structure of just how they changed the George fight and the uh, twin mold fight uh, make a worse experience. So it unfortunately makes what could have been a game I kind of only want it to be a straight remake with some quality of life improvements because Majora's Mask is my favorite game of all time. I've never mentioned that on the show yet, but here's the bombshell. My favorite game of all time is Majora's Mask. That's a, that's a great game to, to, to hold up. But unfortunately, the remake doesn't live up to the original because of just the changes that they make for worse. I think they tried to make it more guided, and I didn't appreciate that. Yeah. The sliders on guidance, you have to, as a, as a game developer, you need to be able to shift them around, uh, shift it just right. You know, you don't want to hold people's hand through it, but you don't want to recreate the Zelda 1 paradigm. But it is a good case study in doing too much to fix something that was close to perfect in my eyes. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it in terms of continuity, and we alluded to the elephant in the room with the Legend of Zelda games. The Zelda timeline. You know, you played a lot of these games as they were coming out. You have been there since Zelda 1. What are your thoughts on the Zelda timeline? And when you were playing these early games prior to Ocarina of Time, were you even thinking about how these games connected to each other? Because I was always a, a hyperactive, a kid with a hyperactive brain, yes, I was. I was sort of wondering how they connected to each other. But the Zelda timeline is basically Nintendo's way of, you know, sort of fitting these games that they intentionally didn't mean to fit together. Right. Together. Honestly, it's hilarious to me. I mean... I look at it from a detached point of view where I don't really give a crap about um, how things fit with each other. I also think it's hilarious that all roads lead to Breath of the Wild. <laughs> like, it's it's like, no matter what you do, destiny, you're getting there. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's their, their take on the multiverse saying, nothing you do matters. Right, it's almost like a concession of like, you people overthought this shit. We didn't want to do this. And here is a convergence point. Whatever, man. But it's it's funny because then you have the whole idea from Ocarina of Time is of time paradoxes uh, with the Song of Storms because you don't learn the Song of Storms until you're an adult. But mm-hmm. you teach the guy the Song of Storms when you're a kid. So where does it come from? You know, it's it's a time paradox. Mm-hmm. But then you sort of, but then like Majora's Mask kind of like retcons that and, and the Song of Storms was written by the royal composer of Termina. But then again, is Termina real or is it purgatory or is it imaginary? Like they don't do a, a good job of explaining what Termina is, but I like that because there you had to have some mystery. Yeah. Um, you can't explain everything. And that's why I think as we sort of lurch back to like Disney, they explain everything. There's no mystery. There's no lore that let the, you let the fans chew on, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I love Lost. I'm the Lost Defender. Um, not the only one. Uh, you know, Matt in our DM is, is a Lost Defender too. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the reasons why I loved Lost was because when they were closing the show up, 
They focused on relationships and story beats and telling and paying off the story they started telling, not answering the questions, the little straggling questions that they asked about lore and science and time travel and whatever. And people were mad about that. But you know what? I, I like to have media that makes me engage my brain. Because uh, like you lose your imagination when you get older a lot of times. And I like when you have help to stimulate that part of your brain because you should never lose your imagination. You should always have the ability to sort of dream a little bit because then you can find some good real world outside of the box solutions to problems that you might have if you can imagine different things rather than stay on the path of what's logical, what's the consensus, where are all the answers. Right. I don't like stories that dedicate a lot of time to answering every question posed. It's not an essay. You're not writing an essay. You're writing a work of art. If you ask a question in an essay, it is your responsibility as a writer to arrive at a conclusion or or at least offer an interpretation of an answer, something. But you can't just pose a question and leave it alone. That's extraneous. But if you are writing a story, you you, you are the master of your reality at that point. You seeking out to answer all the questions posed is a thing you can do, but I don't see a problem in not answering everything. I think those kinds of stories where it's just like a guy in over his head who wouldn't even begin to comprehend the the scope of the shit that he has gotten himself into, I think those kinds of stories are just more inherently compelling than like, hello, audience who is behind the person who was the main character. Here is why this happened. I don't need that all the time. I think it's nice to speculate on it. And I think there are instances of it where people do a good job of keeping things ambiguous. And there are certainly bad jobs of keeping something ambiguous. And there are good jobs of resolving most plot threads. And then there are bad jobs where people tie everything up. And I guess the root of my criticism with all this stuff and what I'm getting at with my talking about all this is I don't like the influence that fans have over the media that they consume. It is an unprecedented problem that we're facing uh, in the age of the internet where everyone can see everything all the time. I feel like the timeline, the official timeline that they gave us was kind of like a here, damn, sort of thing more than it was like something that they have been consciously building towards since the introduction of time paradoxes in Ocarina of Time. I think it was just kind of like the early internet and then people influenced by that early internet culture speculating on something and it escalating to the point where it's like, we need answers, Nintendo, whereas they were pretty content making it a myth and being like, these are sort of alternate versions of the same story with some stories having a little sequel to it and others not being connected. I lived a good chunk of my life pre-canon timeline. And like, obviously I fed into it a little bit. I had my ideas of like, well, obviously Wind Waker is the adult timeline because of the, the the text in the story saying so. And then Twilight Princess is clearly the child timeline because there is a character in here who is literally Link from Ocarina of Time. They're referencing things, but they aren't overt connections that would impact your enjoyment of any game. It's not trying to be that. It's little bits of lore, little bits of fan service. It's it's not meant to be, the, the timeline isn't meant to be the story. It's cool, it's there if you want it the timeline stuff. I'm not going to say you're a stupid person for caring about this stuff. I mean, like speculation is what feeds conversation and keeps, you know, certain properties alive. 
I think that the timeline stuff adds to Ganondorf's character in the Wind Waker specifically as a character with going crazy that he keeps failing over and over again and wanting to get back the dead world that's been left behind. But broadly, I think that the concrete existing timeline is just a bone that was thrown to the fans more than it is something that has been meticulously consciously crafted over four decades. I think it's a symptom of the fans wanting this series to have deeper stories and more lore, whether they know it or not. But I don't think that that is the long-term solution to that problem because eventually you are making too many concessions rather than like making something more interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think there are, they're consciously building a sort of lore starting with Skyward Sword because I, because there's Breath of the Wild 2 is going to be tied to not only Breath of the Wild, but Skyward Sword. And I think if you look at, if you just take out every other game, except for Skyward Sword, Ocarina of Time, Breath of the Wild, and then Breath of the Wild 2, you're going to have like a quadrilogy of stories will tie together a single narrative. I could be wrong though. I don't know, but I think that was their decision to tie it all together. But then again, you're still going to have people who are going to ask, where does Legend of Zelda fit in? Where does, where does Twilight Princess fit in and what have you? And I don't think that's ever going to go away. And I think what should go away is catering to them. And I agree with you on that. Like, I think the difference between art and content is content the main difference is content is, you know, you're filling quotas, you're, you're trying to please people. Art is, is someone telling a story and creating something that satisfies them first and it satisfies someone else. God bless you. It's so funny that the big corporations, are the ones more susceptible to this and so the people, they, they're the ones who really shouldn't, shouldn't care. You know, they're making money and they're going to make money no matter what. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the all tours, you know, you would think that in, in a capitalist society where they have to fight and scrape for every penny, you know, that they would be the ones trying to get the pulse, but they're not. You know, I don't think, you know, if that happened, Jim Jarmusch would be known by more people for being around for 40 years. And he's made a career out of doing his own thing. And, you know, he won an audience that will support him and make him able to support this, this weirdo habit that he turned into a career. And that to me is a bigger success story than any director than like these guys who started out as auteurs and then sort of fed on got got studio money to do big and be rich, you know. To me, someone like Jim Jarmusch is the big is, is an entertainment success story. So that, you know, there's an entertainment success story there, but I also want to like shout out some of the auteurs who are around and who are well known in the industry and still haven't actually made it. Uh, specifically Kelly Reichert, who is uh, a wonderful, wonderful director who makes very small stories about reality and the lives we live in. But despite making these critically acclaimed movies, she is not part of the corporate machine and won't say yes to just about anything. And she suffers for it because she doesn't qualify for health insurance in the industry for that reason. I don't know the exact details of it, but I read this the other day and I was horrified by that because... You, you, you work. That person works. They make movies actively and they don't have security in their job. And I'm not saying that you have to work to earn security, but people who are working aren't even earning security. So what's the point in working? Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's just bullshit. It's all bullshit. But we have to vote, Kiefer. We have to vote. Yeah, I, can I vote specifically to give that woman health insurance? 
Can I can I put a vote uh, on that? Because I would I would I'd vote for that. I'll vote for Kathy. Is it Kathy or Kelly Riker? Kelly Riker. Kelly Riker. I'll vote for Kelly Riker for, to um to get health insurance over over the over Joe Biden and Donald Trump for president. Sure, everyone should have health care. Human beings can theoretically survive without um without work, without uh, doing what the work we have now, without money. The only thing they'd have to do is you know eat and then find a way to get that food and have water and have a way to uh, get that water. You know, it's everything else is just every, everything else. Is, all, all it is, is just, you know, apparatus we've built up under the name of civilization. But if that apparatus is going to be denying people their basic rights to survival, how good is that apparatus? But I'm going to stop there before I get put on a watch list. Sure, sure. I get it. It's just like there is an entire school of thought that dominates politics that makes the idea of survival into a luxury. It's just like the idea of survival being a luxury is just so corrupt. What is the point of these systems if they are not creating a safety net? What is the point of civilization if it is not there to help other people? And that's why the libertarian got mind fuck you mindset never going to work because as long as you depend on other people to keep you alive in terms of commerce, you are going to rely on other people to survive, period. You are going to rely on other people's labor. You are going to rely on other people's resources. They want to create as much division and boundaries as possible make people apprehensive towards each other, keep people from collectivizing. Uh, oh God, oh God, we're going to be on the list, aren't we? Anyway, the, we talked about apocalyptic video games and now here we are talking about how we are marching towards that doomsday practically voluntarily. We are marching towards Legend of Zelda 1. Yeah. People live in caves and old men have fires and then grotesque bulldog creatures uh, hoard money. <laughs> you don't understand what anybody is saying. You can only do a forward thrusting motion for combat. You don't know where to go for anything. And candles only work once per screen. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The Dongos dislike smoke, though. We know that. The Dongo did it. Before we uh, just completely go off the deep end thinking about society for too long, let's go back to why we're here in the first place and talk a little bit about Zelda and you know your experience with it. Clearly, we have a lot of thoughts about it because we've been talking for over three hours now. <laughs> let's bring it all back here. You know, this is a series that you enjoy, and this is a particular specific game that means a lot to you. To help people understand your taste a bit more, or for people who like The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, what would you recommend to these people to enjoy, whether it is another video game or a book, a movie, you know, etc.? I think uh, in terms of video games, there are very few games that are like uh, The Legend of Zelda series. And the closest ones are like JRPGs that you don't really control the actions of your of your guys. But I think uh, for a video game that I, I would get the same sort of satisfaction out of, Hollow Knight, we talked about that, is one that had where you control the action of your guy. It's very moody, dark, uh, atmospheric, but the story is incredible. And it's a great subversion of light versus dark. And then it's got the sword play and it's, it's very reminiscent of Zelda too, in terms of the sword play and reminiscent of Castlevania and Metroid in terms of the, the screen. And for a JRPG, I would say Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger is um, an amazing game that 
you can't play on the Switch right now, but you can still play it if you have copies of it on your Wii or whatever. It's a it's a story about voiceless protagonist and his two female friends, the inventor Luca and the um, Tom girl, tomboy, uh, I forget what her name was. And you accidentally get sucked into a quest where you must prevent the apocalypse from happening. It's a moral about imperialism. It's a moral about um, environmentalism. It's a, it's a, mor- a morality play about the choices we make over time and what they mean for us. Um, in terms of uh, movies and and, me- and and visual media, I, I will go to bat for both the for both uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender and the sequel series, The Legend of Korra. Yep, both of which tap into JRPG ethos with the party sizes, but also deal with the same sort of themes as Zelda of, you know, good versus evil and what happens when you want too much power. How do you fight for balance? Although it's never not a one-to-one comparison, the themes are very similar. Sure. Avatar is more innocent, has more of an innocent protagonist, and uh, Korra is a little more mature just because you're dealing with a... um, a teenage girl who's hormonal and she's struggling with her place in the world, not just, you know, cause her body's changing. Although, you know, she is discovering things about herself throughout the whole series, but she's struggling with her ability with the, with the, and you see the systemic breakdown of a teenage girl by the world. And she has to rebuild herself over four seasons of just getting drop kicked nonstop. And it has a happy ending. So it shows that it shows the determination and, and the indomitable spirit of a, of a teenage girl who can be the most vulnerable person in, in the world. Right. But it's the same sort of mysticism and, and funny creatures and magic. And it's, it's wonderful. It's almost as good as the, as the, 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 the series before. Avatar. All right. Anything else you want to recommend? I recommend, um, and we're going off what what's uh, off Zelda vibes, uh, unless you find a, a hot sauce that is made from ingredients you find laying on the ground in Breath of the Wild. Uh, Melinda's hot sauce. I'm not being paid for this, but they have some good hot sauces, um, spicy and tasty. Um, I recommend uh, following the Zelda Gifts account on Twitter. Um, not only do they post a lot of really good Zelda memes, uh, they also retweet a, a deals account where you can get some cool stuff. If, if, that, if buying stuff online is your bag. Um, I, I got a, um, a cheese grater that looks like the master sword. And I ordered a, uh, pot holder set with the four champions from breath of the wild on it. And I also uh, recommend following Kiefer on Twitter. Oh, Hey, He's you very, know, very thoughtful. That's very sweet. But I do have a couple recommendations of my own. But I did want to say, Tom, firstly, terrific, terrific recommendations. You recommended one of my favorite shows of all time and one of my favorite video games of all time. So, yay. Um, uh, Chrono Trigger obviously has a lot of the same doomsday thoughts that we keep in our minds every day. And and Avatar The Last Amateur is probably like the most meaningful piece of media to me maybe ever. And Korra is also a very good continuation of that. And I enjoy it. As for my recommendations, we've talked a lot about movies today. I would recommend the film The Green Knight, uh, which is the closest a movie has ever gotten to me personally for replicating the feeling that I get playing Zelda. Just a bunch of weird stuff happening in a fantasy setting 
I always feel like I'm being a little reductive using my gamer brain to make connections to serious movies like this and the Robert Eggers movie, The Northman. But I think these connections are useful in onboarding people onto something out of their comfort zone. And The Green Knight's just this really weird, cerebral movie, and you don't quite fully understand what's happening, but it is playing out anyway, and it is a grand adventure in a very green, feudal land. So it is definitely worth watching if you like the vibe and aesthetics of Zelda. Uh, as for video games, Cadence of Hyrule is a great spin-off game in the style of the Crypt of the Necrodancer video game. It is a rhythm game where you move and fight to the beat of the music of the Zelda series, and it's a great marriage of rhythm gameplay with the aesthetic and music of Zelda. I shout this one out specifically for A Link to the Past because it is drawing off of those aesthetics and the overworld is deliberately evocative of uh, A Link to the Past specifically. If I'm going to give a recommendation to something that isn't Zelda related, because that feels like cheating, Hyper Light Drifter is another video game I'd recommend. It's an indie title that, like A Link to the Past, is a top-down action-adventure game. Like the early Zelda games, it's light on narrative and spoken dialogue. It's deliberately evoking the vibe of the SNES-era 16-bit video games. It, but it looks incredible, and a lot is conveyed through the environments, even in that deliberately limited style. It's inspired by older Zelda games, but it is aesthetically distinct from that high fantasy look. Um, like you said earlier, it has like a retro futurism thing going on, laser swords and overgrowth over technology, but there's also sort of like that old world feel to everything at the same time. I believe that it's closer to the look of a Ghibli film like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind which I'd also recommend if you like Zelda. Um, Nausicaa specifically was a visual influence on the video game series Dark Souls, which brings me back to Dark Souls. I think it was a visual influence at least because there is an area in that first Dark Souls game, uh, the Ash Lake, which looks very, very similar to the Poison Jungle in that film. So you can sort of look at it as one Miyazaki influencing another Miyazaki. There's a lot of Ghibli films I'd recommend if you like Zelda, actually. Um, Castle in the Sky is terrific, and it looks like it's a huge inspiration for the upcoming Breath of the Wild sequel. That's the only speculation I could give you about that Breath of the Wild sequel, because I don't have any idea what's going on, and I don't want to make any grand sweeping assumptions about anything or set an expectation for anything else, but I think I can reliably say they watched a lot of Castle in the Sky for this one. And then Princess Mononoke is a darker, more violent fantasy film that will definitely give you Zelda vibes. I don't even have to qualify that. You'll, you, you'll get it basically immediately. You can't go wrong with any of those three movies. And that's it for recommendations from me. Um, we are about to move on to the next segment, Tom, but do you have anything else you'd want to say or iterate on? Uh, no, just peace, love, and keep it a buck. Let's go to the next segment. So this is a segment called No Country for Old Games. So for those of you new to the show, or if you just haven't been paying attention, I don't judge, this is the part of the episode where we talk about video game preservation. It's an issue that is very important to me, as I consider video games to be an art form, and as works of art, efforts should be made to preserve these games and make them readily available to play so as many people can experience them as possible. So we're going to look at The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, and rate its availability on a scale of A, to ARG, and ARG is me being frustrated at how the game isn't readily available, and it is in no way me advocating for piracy. Before I get too deep into the discussion about game preservation and 
how readily available this game is to play in the grand scheme of things, I do have to ask you, Tom, when you get the urge to replay A Link to the Past, how do you play it? Very carefully. <laughs> I, know, um, I, I play it on the Switch. I play whatever uh, system is available to me. You're, if you like the higher profile games, you're lucky because Nintendo will pr preserve those. You'll make you, they'll make you pay for it over and over again, but they preserve them. That's not the case for everybody. You know, some people are more hardcore gamers. You know, we'll use Chrono Trigger as an example. You can't play Chrono Trigger on the Switch. You have to make sure you bought it on the Wii before the Wii Shop went, uh, got shut down and hook, hook your Wii up and play it. So I play it on the Switch and I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Currently, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past is available on the paid Nintendo Switch online service. I have mixed feelings about this. On one hand, I think it's great how anybody who owns a Nintendo Switch can gain access to this monumental, foundational game as long as they have an internet connection and a subscription to their online service. Now those conditions are my issue with it because I think locking legacy games behind a subscription service sucks. I understand it's not the most expensive service, but I don't see why they don't also sell these games individually on their digital storefront at a fixed rate. If you're only interested in a couple of SNES games, you shouldn't have to pay the recurring subscription fee. Now, as I alluded to with my discussion with TH, the version on the Switch has the rewind feature and save states that aren't in the original SNES version. Those are great quality of life additions to the SNES and NES games on the service that weren't part of the original release. But I have a lot of conflicted feelings about the way the Nintendo Switch Online service is implemented as a whole. I hate how primitive the actual internet service is. I hate how pathetic a lot of the game inclusions on the service are and how infrequently games are added to it. And I hate that the games are locked behind this service. I like the quality of life additions. I like that it makes older games easier and more accessible to newer gamers. I like that these games are at least available on the service officially. So I'm not gonna give it an ARG because that would be disingenuous. Nintendo did make the game readily available on the Switch in at least one form that's reasonably accessible. But they can also do a lot better, so I'm not giving it an A either. I'll split this right down the middle. I hope this doesn't make me sound like a hater. I love Nintendo games. Zelda is my favorite video game series. A Zelda game is my favorite video game of all time. But I do believe that they can do much better than they currently are at a lot of things, and I don't think it's unreasonable to express that. So that concludes No Country for Old Games. Tom, thank you again for coming on to the show. You have been super awesome. This has been a really rich discussion. I'm sorry for keeping you too long. It's all right. I'm, I'm, alone, on, I'm, all, I'm alone on a Saturday. It was a nice way to spend it. Like I said, I mean, like I, I love talking to you. Obviously, I hope the conversation wasn't too much of a bummer for you on an existential level, but it, it was a very productive one and I enjoyed the conversation and you're very easy and fun to talk to. So Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, stay cool. Don't go outside because you might throw up like I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, before you go, please shout yourself out again and tell people where to find you after the show. All right. So you can follow me on Twitter at T Holzerman. Um, that's where I spend most of my time. You can follow me on Twitter. And if you are an attractive uh, blonde woman between between 35 and 50 uh, with a mom bod, let me, feel free to slide into my DMs. You can find me on Instagram, same name, T. Holzerman. Uh, you can find me on my Substack, the newsletter of the Mental Health Break, which is tholzerman.substack.com. And you can find me on Facebook, but I'd rather you not. All right. So do not look him up on Facebook. Slide <laughs> in his DMs. Follow him on Substack. Thank you so much again for coming on, Tom. I hope you get that. Whatever a mom bod blonde woman <laughs> is, I, I, I hope I hope. She finds you and please enjoy the rest of your weekend. All right.
Thank you. All right. Appreciate that. All right. You take care. Thank you again. Welcome back to Select and Start. So TH had to go. This episode ran a little long and he had to go make dinner. So it's just uh, two of us now. How are you doing? <laughs> Before I end the episode, I did want to try out this new segment I'm doing. I didn't want to just reduce the discussion of the game to just TH and I. This game means a lot to other people as well, so before I recorded this episode, I put out a tweet asking people to share their thoughts on A Link to the Past, and I said I would read them on the show. So I've got a few here today. So starting off strong in the screen name department is at MPD Queer, aka Weaponized Autism. They said, This is the first Zelda game I ever played as a kid, and I have super fond memories of my mom helping me with the tough parts. I replay it probably every year, and it still holds up. Yeah, it holds up terrifically for a 30-year-old game. I completely agree with you. That's very sweet. Jordan, aka at jstroud97, said, My first Zelda game, and one of the first games I completely beat. It gave me a sense of adventure that, in my opinion, is rarely matched in gaming. Huge variety in gameplay and music that has been on repeat in my head ever since first playing it. Yeah, it's a great starter Zelda game. I, um, I completely agree with that. So much of the iconic music is established in this game. The gameplay tropes are all there. Terrific stuff. Connor, aka at CD Beaton, said, Probably the most influential Zelda title bar none. This is Zelda in its purest form, and I love it to bits. Me too. At Matt underscore T, aka the Chill Wave Enjoyer. He's a friend of the pod. Uh, he's in our gaming group chat with TH and I. He said, The best Zelda. Yes, better than Breath of the Wild. I disagree. I, I don't think it's the best Zelda game. It's great. It's foundational. I think it's the first Zelda game anybody should play. I don't think it's better than Breath of the Wild. I at least prefer Majora's Mask and The Wind Waker to it. And for nostalgic reasons, I'm probably going to give it to Ocarina Time over A Link to the Past 2. And I do think Breath of the Wild is also better than A Link to the Past. But that's just me. If you want to fight me on it, fight me on it. But what are you going to do? I'm invisible. You can't hit me. Unleashed Bimblar, aka at Reincarnate, said... I've started this game maybe two or three times and never gotten past the first temple. I recognize its influence, and I love its spiritual successor, The Link Between Worlds, but it just doesn't instantly grab me like a lot of the other Zeldas I've played first. Yeah, it's weird that we never got to talk about A Link Between Worlds now that I think about it. It's not my favorite Zelda game, but it's still a great game to me. I'm sorry it wasn't York thing, <laughs> but I definitely recommend sticking with it because it's a relatively short game, it won't take too much of your time, and it does definitely improve as you get to the Dark World. I do agree with the sentiment that this might be a bit harder to love if your on-ramp to the series is the 3D games like it was for me. A Link Between Worlds is an awesome game, so I'm glad you at least got to enjoy a form of A Link to the Past, even if you don't enjoy the original game. One last review before we go. This is from my buddy Paul, aka at PZ Vibes. He said, The pinnacle of 2D game design. The best utilization of the SNES's unique graphical features. Personally, I'll never forget the awe I felt when going to the Dark World for the first time. Absolutely mind-melting that they fit essentially two worlds of that size onto an SNES cartridge. I agree. I agree. Alright, so that's the end of that segment. If you're interested in having your tweets read on the show, give the show a follow on Twitter, at SelectPodStart, and leave a comment with your thoughts, and I might read it on the show. Maybe you also have a recommendation based on the games we've discussed or based on how we've described our taste, and you're happy to submit that as well. I don't want us to just shout movies and video games at each other and have that be the end of the discussion. You're more than welcome to pitch in as well. All right. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Engagement helps the show and your feedback will improve it. If you want to get more engaged, like I said, you can follow the show on Twitter at SelectPodStart, and you can follow me on Twitter on my personal page at Danny Vegito. If you have thoughts about A Link to the Past or any other game we've discussed so far, please send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. The art for the show is made by my best friend Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at AveryRobinOtt. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as TH's. All right. I think that's it. It's a secret to everybody. Don't fuck with the cucks, man.